0: Good morning, welcome to Wake Up Carolina, Thursday morning, October 26, 843 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Good morning, jew and Josh. Good morning. <laughs> Jew-hating no shot, Josh. That's right. right. Why is that, Josh? We'll get to that in a bit. I mean, Josh wants to elaborate a bit, I think, uh, and explain himself yesterday. We had a prominent employee of community broadcasters stick their head in the door yesterday and vehemently disagree with Josh's mm. position. I stood my ground for you.
1: Uh-oh.
0: Community broadcasters has to be an employer of diversity, right? So I wanted to make sure that you were <laughs> here this morning and not exported. I think I know who yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm sure you did. He has a very um, traditional biblical worldview, um, a little bit different than than your uh, your phraseology um, yesterday. Eight four three six six one. Oh, you just nine. like stirring it up. Well, I mean, man. I don't like stirring it yeah, up. you I mean, do. It, no, I don't. Am I? Did I mislead? No. Okay. No. I mean, I do mislead yeah, you know. when I say Jew-hating Josh. I think he's just... Uh, uh, only a
1: little. Yeah, I think he's Israeli.
0: <laughs> well, Josh said he loves the Jews. as not much as he does everybody else. Uh, that was know. a joke
1: the, and, and off the air. So. <laughs> yeah, see? See? You,
0: that's what you're well, doing. You're stirring it up. Well, I mean... It, it, <laughs> You got to be careful what you say when we're looking for ratings, <laughs> right? I mean, you got to be careful. We're, we're Josh. We are in the hyperbolic sensa- sensational business. You know that we are.
1: Um, and Josh, you should have learned by now. You have to be careful what you say off the air to Ken Art because, in, you don't say it
0: to him unless you want it to be <laughs> well, I mean, said on the. air. But We do it in very casual, <laughs> having fun, um, fashion. Hey, we we've, we we talked a little college football at the beginning of every show, and. Because we're going to have the lieutenant governor here tomorrow in the 9 o'clock hour, I'll let Rev decide whether Jason comes or not um, in the 9 o'clock hour. I don't know how we do that. I mean, if you get a chance to sit down with the um, sitting lieutenant yeah, governor I, I of South told Carolina. Him we,
1: uh, he was getting bumped.
0: Yeah, he'll get bumped. And, um, you know, it's not that we Gamecocks are ganging up on the Tigers. No. No, he totally but, understood. Um, okay, okay, fair enough. I just wanted to make sure we had that clear. So um, he doesn't show up wanting to talk Clemson football because I think the lieutenant governor is a big Clemson fan. Oh. If I'm not mistaken, I think she may be a, a Tiger fan. Um, I was allowed, and I think Rev will find this a bit interesting, and maybe some of you do, maybe you don't. Um, I was allowed yesterday to hear a conversation uh, between some prominent movers and shakers in college football. Um, they're not household names. I mean, it's not Jim Harbaugh. Has anybody seen the artificial intelligence of Jim Harbaugh, the AI video on Twitter out and about. No. I mean, he says something about, yeah, I got caught cheating, but I had to lift this dumpy program out of the, the heaps of, you know, wherever Michigan Ooh. football had been. And I'm like, dude, and it's, I mean, it's, it's so lifelike. I mean, it's not Harbaugh. It's an artificial intelligence recreation of Harbaugh, but it is so, Depicting of who he exactly or exactly who who is scary, um, what AI can do. And eventually, I mean, I, I would imagine it'll get even more lifelike as we um, as we progress in the science or into whatever artificial intelligence. Is it science? Is it technology? <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. I guess. Is it an industry? Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it's all to deal. But anyway, knows? I was allowed to sit in uh, on a conversation yesterday. Um, of some prominent people that nobody knows who they are. But they're kind of um, – they, they would be some of the movers and shakers. They would be some of the fundraising, some of the donor class. Who is that guy? I've never heard his name. I don't know, but he gave $50 million last year to the DNC or $100 million to the RNC, so, some of those sorts of people. But the conversation was about collectives and NILs and the state of college football. And there's a lawsuit in, te- in California. There's a lawsuit in California that is trying to um, prop- force, really trying to force universities to share the revenue of college athletics. I mean, in essence, that's the theory. Um, the universities are concerned that the player may become an employee, collective bargaining and health insurance and all these other sorts of things. I wrote some numbers down this morning that I remembered from the call yesterday Um There are about uh, 54 schools that were part of this study, all power five. 54 schools, all power five. Um, Their budgets for the 550 coaches are about the same. The amount of money they spend to compensate the 550 coaches are about the same as the amount of money it takes to fund scholarships and provide medical care to the 30,000 student athletes. Let me say that again. The amount of money that is spent in these 54 Power 5 schools is about the same that is spent on 30,000 student-athletes, scholarships, and health care. It's about the same amount of money that compensates 550 coaches. So the disproportionality, I guess, is what we're getting at. So in California, somebody filed a lawsuit, and it has standing. And California is a fairly liberal state. They would be the ones that say, yeah, of course, the universities are taking advantage of these kids. Newsflash: They are. They have been for a long, 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 long time, uh, and the kid deserves some degree of compensation. Is it a stipend? Is it an NIL collective deal? Is it a paycheck? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. But the um, as much as the political world is in transition, and we're talking about the Republican Party, college football is in of a very transitionary um, or transitioning period from what it was to what it eventually will be. I don't think we're where we're going to end up. I mean, I think we're in the transition period of, you know, uh, dare dare I say, the oldest plantation model to a new, you know, kind of a semi-pro league that feeds professional football teams uh, their future athletes or their future football players. I don't think we're where we'll end up. But here was an interesting conversation yesterday. And, I mean, it's kind of inside, but it's not – it's not top-secret information, but it's not being floated out of the mainstream yet. So the lawsuit in California has standing. Lawyers have told the NCAA and the conferences, the Power Five conferences, probably going to lose this lawsuit. I mean, the kid is probably going to be able to collective, excuse me, to um, to revenue share at some degree. I mean, that's, that's kind of where we're headed. Um, Now, if we make the kid an employee of the university, in other words, if um, – if, if, if Shipley at Clemson is an employee of Clemson, I mean, he gets collect him and he, he can, all the things employees can do. I mean, he can collective bargain at some point in time. He can demand, you know, he can strike. He can do all these other sorts of things. He has the arrangement is, um, it, it's just fundamentally different. I mean, it becomes employer employee. Um, they want to head that off. I mean, that, that's not what I, I don't think that's in the best interest of the kid, I don't think that's in the best interest of the university. I know it's not in the best interest of the sport. There's no doubt about that. The employer-employee relationship does not need to be the case. If they win the revenue sharing, here's what I think might happen. You ready? And I know a lot of college football fans are like, wow, okay. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a big deal in Clemson and Carolina world. Mm -hmm. Some of the powers to be in college football understand that the NIL has allowed – certain teams who have certain affluent fan bases and, and, and alumni to really separate themselves. Um, the, the Texases, the Texas A&Ms, the Ohio States, the Michigans, the Southern California, uh, the UCLA's for that matter. I mean, you take tradition and now you've got this, you know, you can go to the donors and say, hey, I know you're giving to the, uh, to the Buckeye Club or the Wolverine Club, but we need you to give to this NIL. They're, they're far more likely to raise more money than even a South Carolina Clemson. And I'll say this. The Gamecocks and Tigers, I mean, if there are two categories, haves and have-nots, the Gamecocks and Tigers are both in the haves category. I mean, they, they are. I mean, they're, they're not the have-nots by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, you go to Clemson, look at their football facility. I mean, that's not a have-not. Go to Columbia, look at their facilities. That's not a have-not. But it ain't Texas. It ain't Texas a It's not. Uh, Ohio State or Michigan. So when you when you try to be somewhat of a visionary in college football, when you look down the road and say what is to come, there's two things: a lack of parity and the relationship the player has with the university. I mean, those are the two concerns that all Power Five conference commissioners have. And you know, forget the NCAA. I mean, they've lost their credibility as far as I'm concerned. I'm I'm just I'm more interested in who's running the TV networks and who's commissioners of the conference. I mean, the NCAA has really delegitimized their influence in college football. Uh, I, I could honestly say good riddance to the NCAA. I mean, it, it, was, it was kind of a cartel for a long time. They ran things. Um, you know, the coach could sign a $10 million contract, but the kid couldn't get sour cream on his bagel without some NCAA violation. Screw that. I mean, the NCAA, as far as I'm concerned, is a minor player. It's the commissioners of the Power Five and the TV networks. So, so here's what I'm going to predict. California, the California lawsuit sides with the student athlete, with the football player and says, you got to do revenue sharing with these kids. Uh, Some are doing okay at the NIL. Some are not. Uh, Texas, Texas A&M are going to raise a lot of money. Clemson and Carolina are doing okay. Some schools have done lousy at it. Some schools have made promises. They can't meet. Um, Donors are tired of giving money. I mean, they, You know, we're, we're giving money to build indoor practice facilities. We're, building, we're giving money to build full opera, football operations buildings. We're funding Get taking the Gamecock Club. I'm out, man. I mean, I don't have any more. I mean, I want to win, but I don't want to win that damn bad. I mean, I'm not my, having my house foreclosed on to give a little more money to an NIL so you can play a quarterback so we can win, you know, a football game. But, but here's where revenue sharing, I think, can be properly managed because the NCAA is freaking out because they're losing control. But the commissioners at the conferences are going, okay, let's, let's stick with us for a second. If the Power Five conferences can agree, and it may eventually be Power Three, I don't know. Um, but if the Power, let's say, if the if the big boys, if the big if the halves of college football um, can can accept the decision the California courts make, and kids can participate in revenue sharing, here's what needs to happen and may happen. And here's what I gained from my conversation yesterday: the conference will allocate ten percent of all television revenue equally distributed amongst the member institutions of said conference, and that funds the NIL. If you give them, if the, tele, let's, let's say the University of South Carolina or Clemson sets aside 10%, well, let's use Gamecocks. I know their numbers. When Texas and Oklahoma come in the league, the Gamecocks will get somewhere around $80 million a year in TV revenue. and it, it's, I mean, it, who knows exactly what it is. Wow but it's going to be some, I mean, Texas, Oklahoma, big boys. Yeah. Uh, when they come in the league, we get a, k- kind of a step up in some of the TV revenue. So it'll be somewhere in the neighborhood of $80 million. If the league mandates that the University of South Carolina take 10% of that and give to the football, the student athletes, they become employees of the university. But if you give the $8 million to the NIL to Garnet Trust, you're, you're creating kind of an intermediary. So they're not employees of the university. So so I'm predicting, and this gets in the weeds a bit, and who am I? I mean, I'm in on a call that nobody knows I'm on. Anyway, and um, not supposed to be there, but I'm hearing things. <laughs> and I thought of these things, and, and this, isn't, this isn't groundbreaking. I mean, there have been some other people say things similar to this. But once the lawsuit in California, once that revenue sharing becomes the way forward, the the, the conferences should consider. A percentage, and I've heard 10% of TV revenue goes to the school to be spent on basically paying players. I mean, let's call it what it is. I mean, it's not a name, image, and likeness. There ain't 30 players in college football whose name, image, and likeness are worth much. The others are, I mean, they're getting paid to play football. And that's what, you know, let's stop calling it name, image, and likeness. It's called paid to play. You know, you're a good player. You're a good player. You deserve to get paid. And here's a paycheck. But but I, I just think that's the best way to do it. The Big Ten, okay. uh, the SEC, uh, I'm trying to think of the other. Well, they've kind of separated themselves. Um, in other words, Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt will have an NIL funded to the same degree Texas will. And it will create uh, a better opportunity at parity. I don't mm-hmm. know if it'll ever create parity. I mean, some schools care more. Some schools invest more. Some schools have tradition. And some schools build libraries. You know, that's just the nature. Now, here would uh, be my question.
1: Could local schools that have the huge donor base add to the NIL and give themselves an
0: advantage. I would say no. I think you make that illegal. Yeah. You, you've, the ins, the, once you create the, that, the, 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 the NFL, parody. The yeah. Okay. Let, let's see this. Okay. If Vanderbilt gets eight million for its NIL, Texas gets eight million for its NIL, Texas adds 10 million to the eight million. Vanderbilt adds zero. They're building libraries and graduating right. kids, you know, nuclear physicist, um, it creates the imparity. I mean, it, there, there's a lack of parity in the game today, and, and I think that's problematic. And as much as you and I as Braves fans don't like the wild cards and don't like the postseason format, it keeps a lot of fan bases tuned into baseball. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, an, there's a team that won 84 games, and they're playing in the World Series. The Braves won 104. I mean, if they'd been in the same division, they would have trailed the Braves by 20 games. They're in the World Series. The Braves aren't. I don't like that. You don't like that. But it does create parity. In a sport, it creates opportunities for fan bases to stay interested longer, and 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 you know that's just good for the. I mean, that's that's good for you can't have college football every year with about three, four, five, six teams legitimately thinking about a championship. I under, well, it's always been that way. I mean, even in the old days, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Notre Dame. Yeah, but mean, the, the game has become somewhat niche and and college football has to expand its viewership. I mean, it's been it's getting consumed by by professional football. Why don't we play big games on Thursday night anymore, because the NFL decided to play on Thursday night. It's just you know, I mean, the, the NFL dwarfs college football, and I think one of the reasons is there's no parity. Uh, who drafts first in an NFL draft? The worst, I mean, worst team. team. I mean, the worst team. So, 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 ten percent of the revenue, the TV money, goes to the conference. The conference says to the school, the member institution, we just voted on a law, a rule, a statute that says ten percent of your TV revenue must go. To compensate players but if you compensate directly rev they become an employee of the university and that gets all messy give the money designate an nil give the money to the collective and let the collective manage and allocate and disperse um said resources I, I, that's just i mean i, I fixed our civil case <laughs> or I, I fixed our civil courts yesterday yeah you did in about 10 or 15 minutes it took me 20 to do this but that's kind of where i think <laughs> the best opportunity lies um 10% of all television revenue goes to collectives. And then collectives decide. And if you're raising more money on top of that, there's there going to be some substantial fines. I mean, there's going to be some penalties and punishments if you do that. Um, and it creates parity, and the kid gets at least their fair share, maybe a little more than their fair share. As the universities get wealthier with increased television rights fees, the kid does better. Doesn't that make sense? Kind of does. Okay. We fixed that. There you go. Now on to Josh. Take a break. <laughs> Take a break. Back in a few. 843 661 is our number. I'm thinking about your early morning ideas here. You always have some. But but I want to be careful. They're not necessarily my ideas. I have thought about this and have discussed this with friends of mine who are in high places. Most of my friends, as Garth Brooks says, are in no places. Low places? Low places. Did I say no? He said, no. well, that'd probably be better. No places. <laughs> I got a few in low no place, places, no places, yeah, no places, low places, but every now and then, um, I'll cross paths with someone who is in a, a prominent and in high place. And some of the conversations I've had around NIL are, you know, what to do. I like it. I don't like it. Uh, it doesn't matter if you like it or not. I mean, I, I tell people when we discuss college football, Clemson and Gamecock fans. And in fact, I was with a good buddy of ours yesterday in the gym talking about Gamecocks and Tigers. And he said, and I quote, and he's one of the biggest Clemson fans I know in this world. He said, I despise it. I don't like it. I've given all I know to give to Clemson. I graduated there. I love the Tigers. I want them to win every game. But I've given all I know to give, and now I'm getting calls from the NIL collectives right. wanting more money. And see, that's part of, that's
1: that's interesting part of the proposals you're talking about is because it would take that burden off of the donors, right? But the donors are asked to give and give and give. And, oh, by the way, if you want good players, you're going to have to give some more.
0: Yeah, well, you know, the money, oh, yeah, the, Dave, the money you gave went to build that football operations building, that mm. indoor practice facility, <laughs> that, that wonderful parking lot that you tailgate in. Now we're getting to the players. Now, now we've got right. to figure out a way for the, to allow oh, the you to, want to, to, win to get too. Good, really good players. <laughs> How about another, uh, you know, 500 a month? How about mm. another $1,000 a month? How about another one-time donation of twenty grand? You know, we've got to fund this NIL. I get it. I mean, I understand it. It is the wild, wild west right now. And I think it will eventually, I don't want to say subside, but, but you know, we, we had – I mean, the NCAA's greed and incompetence is why we're here. I mean, that, let's say that True. again. The NCAA's greed and incompetence are why we're here today. And the players probably get more than they deserve. But, but I think we've got to normalize and standardize um, some of this. And I think the best way to do it is the idea – that has been kind of pitched, and and I don't know if it would ever happen if not for the California lawsuit, but it looks like most legal minds believe that the, the California lawsuit is going to side with the kids who are asking for a share of the revenue. And once revenue sharing becomes, you know, the new normal, if you share the revenue directly with the kid, the kid becomes an employee of the university, and that gets real complicated. Instead of that, take 10% of the television money, fund the collective, let the collective be the front office. I mean, that's what you're basically doing. The people running the collectives are the front offices of semi-pro football teams. I mean, let's be honest. If money's the answer. Now ask the question. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's, I, I just think that is a, it would be a fairer way to do it because now the collectives don't have to go behind the Gamecock Club at Ipte. I mean, they—they they know that the Gamecock Club has sent you a letter. They know that it they sent Josh a letter asking for all they can get, and now you've got to be, uh, you know, willing or not to say to the collective, um, wow. So the only way we get good players is to raise six million dollars a year, so we can go sign good players and get good players to transfer in here. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm telling you. Now the television networks, you know, and um, I mean the university's got to shuffle around some funding. But I would rather them do it than the donor class being asked to pony up more and more and more and more because the friend of mine at Clemson or the Clemson friend of mine said yesterday, because I asked him this, I said, let me ask you a question. If there was a fork in the road, he's as big a Clemson fan as I know and has been involved in Clemson athletics for as long as I've known him at a pretty significant level. I asked him, I said, okay. I nearly called his name. I said, okay, there's a fork in the road and one fork goes to the, the furtherance of NILs and, and collective bargaining and professional, you know, football. The other goes to, hey, trials at 1.30 Saturday. All of you that played high school football show up. We're going to put a team together, and it's going to be real college football. I mean, he told me, he said, I'd, I'd go that way. I mean, I really can True contribute. amateur go, athletics. I, tr- true amateur athletics. Trials at 1.30. All you old boys that played high school football show up. We're going to take the best of you, and we're going to put, um you know, 50, 60 of you in pads. And we're going to, you know, go play a football game against somebody who's doing the same thing that we're doing. It takes a lot of the pressure off, and, and it becomes a financial uh, – it, it's more feasible or feasible financially if you do it that way. But But the answer could be to let the revenue sharing be the new norm, to take 10% of the television revenue and force universities to fund collectives with that 10% and hire competent people to run the collectives, and they become the front office of Clemson and Gamecock football. I mean, you know, in other words, you can call it what you want to call it, but they're basically, I mean, what is Andrew Andropoulos or Alex Andropoulos? I mean, he's in the front office of the Atlanta Braves. Um, I I would imagine he's got a staff, a front office personnel. What are they doing? I mean, they get a budget, right? I mean, the Braves have the 13th highest payroll in all of Major League Baseball. So when he sits down at his desk with his computer and staff, he says, hey, we can sign this guy, but it's going to cost us this much. If we unload this player, we save this much. And he, as a smart, competent front front office general manager, I guess, or director of player personnel, whatever his official title is, he makes decisions that chart the course of where the Braves go. Now, I would imagine he does it in concert with the the manager. Sure. I mean, I would imagine the manager says, I, I need somebody to hit behind Olson." You know, I need somebody to... To to pitch between Morton and such and such and they go out and I mean I just think it becomes much more equitable and parity is a part of the game now everybody has a shot to compete for a championship now I don't think it changes Vanderbilt's demeanor I mean I don't think Vanderbilt says wow we got this collective and we get this money from the tv uh revenue let's stop building libraries and graduate nuclear Uh, physicists." I doubt Auburn stops, you know, building up decks on football stadiums and starts building student learning centers. I mean, there are certain personalities that go along with certain universities, and the fan bases expect those to be the, uh, the trademarks of, um, of university X, Y, or Z. Okay, we got to get back to politics. Josh, let's take our, our second break. When we get back, we've got a new speaker. We've got a speaker that voted to decertify the election. we got a speaker. Who does not want to send any more money to Ukraine? Mm, so far, so good. <laughs> is the is or are we further along in the realignment of the Republican Party than we give ourselves credit for? Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. We have a new speaker, Mike Johnson of Louisiana. Got two hundred twenty of the two hundred twenty one Republican votes, if I'm not mistaken. Derek Van Orden was absent did not vote uh maybe I'm, abstained i don't know but he didn't vote um in the what fourth round of voting i don't think that was the fourth first round for mike um johnson but the fourth round overall didn't scalise try twice jordan once or was it scalise once and jordan twice i think,
1: twice? Was, I think scalise once jordan mm-hmm. twice okay
0: scalise I'm once right. jordan twice he just right jordan twice and then mike johnson on the fourth ballot um, is the is it weird speaker, that I, I don't think
1: I really even know who who he is. I've not really heard anything about it.
0: He's kind of a low-key dude. Had a radio show in Louisiana. Okay. He is a lawyer. Um, he filed the amicus brief in Texas asking to decertify the election in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Nevada. I mean, that's what the liberal media finds so distasteful about him being the, uh, the speaker He is a, um, I mean, his scorecard for funding for Ukraine, the American Foreign Policy Council issues these weekly scorecards, Um, not monthly, not yearly, but weekly scorecards, and he's about as bad as it gets when it comes to funding Ukraine. Um, That's kind of good for me. I'm going to be honest with you. My worldview today and the evolution of my worldview, I'm kind of in line with him there. So that's two of the big problems. Uh, We'll find out sooner than later where he stands on you know, omnibus and continuing resolutions, uh, in the November the 17th deadline, got to have more money to pay our bills. got to borrow more money to pay the bills of money. We already spent. That's pretty wild. I mean, it's not that we're spending money. We've already spent the money. Now we're borrowing or already appropriated the money. Let me say that we've already appropriated the money. We're simply voting on whether or not we're going to borrow it to honor our obligations. It's kind of crazy the way we're, we're running our government, but, um, The biggest loser in this to me, I mean, it's not the Democrats, I mean, the Democrats really don't, I mean, I'm not saying they don't care. They're going to make political hay of this. They're going to say, you know, some, um, Southern bigoted election denier. I mean, I got to believe that'll be the, the mainstream narrative from Hakeem Jeffries and I mean, Jeffries is just waiting. I mean, he's in the most advantageous position in Washington today. He's a young guy. He is, you know, obviously their choice to be speaker once the Democrats get the majority, and as much as you and I would like that not to be the case, the Democrats will get the majority back one day. It may be next year. It may be two years after that. But the Democrats, I mean, there's no permanent majority in, in, in Washington. I mean, as much as we like to say, that is the death nail of this party or that's the death nail of that party or this party will never resurrect itself from this um, fiasco or that party. No, I mean, they always do. And it's normally not one party doing something to gain favor with the country is the other party screwing it up. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of the way, and then they win by that's default, true.
1: so to speak. If you need to know something about uh, the new speaker, Johnson, uh, Adam Schiff. We love Adam Schiff, right? He tweeted yesterday, let me make this simple. Johnson is a hard-right, pro-Trump, leading election denier in the House. Now, he was throwing that sounds out good as a negative ver- ver- Sounds, sounds good to me. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds like we might have okay. got our guy. So far, um, sounds
0: great. Well, he's, he's one of the founders of Freedom Caucus. He is a, uh, a a very very spiritual man. I mean that's a big part of um, of his claim to fame is his um, conser- his Christian conservative uh, bona fides. Call me weird. I like the fact that he's a Southerner. I mean that's, I mean I, I, just, I just think he's going to be a little more relatable to people like me. Um, I, I don't know what McCarthy did. I mean, I love these radio show hosts. And these these talk show personalities that say, well, you know, McCarthy did this, and the caucus did. No, you don't know that. Here's one thing I know. I know for sure that not a single radio show host in America knows what happened in the caucus. I know how caucuses work. I can assure you that that radio show hosts all over this country have heard rumors, and they've talked to people, but they don't know what McCarthy did to cause Matt Gates. And in all honesty. The relationship that McCarthy and Gates had, McCarthy didn't have to do much. I mean, Gates looks for the for the spotlight. Gates is a grandstander, um, but in all honesty, Gates won. I mean, he replaced a California Republican with a Louisiana Republican. I mean, at face, at surface, that's kind of good enough for me. Um, do you
1: think that's good for
0: America first? Well, I mean, there's no question about it. It's good for America first. I mean, okay. there's no doubt about it. We were always concerned how supportive McCarthy was of the America First agenda. I mean, he was a little bit, he wanted it both ways. And maybe that's what he got in trouble with. Well, I'm sure that's what he got in trouble with because he made 20 deals with 16, you know, members of Congress to make sure he could gain um, their support. And you just can't make it if you make that many deals with that many people. I don't have any idea why Johnson became the consensus candidate. I mean, I've read some reports of desperation, and the caucus just got, you know, kind of beat him into, into submission, um, wins by default. Wow, I'm tired of doing this. We're making a mockery of the system. See, that's kind of where I land. When I read these tweets by these establishment Republicans that the Republican Party is making a mockery of the system, I think they're one word off. It's, it's as simple as replacing system with mockery. We're making a mockery of the mockery. So, how do you, I mean, the, the mockery is that those folks genuinely have an interest in governing the country. I mean, that, that's the—it's not a systematic way of—I mean, I understand processes. I understand the procedures. I understand the rules of the body. I get all that. I understand all that. But that's not what carries the day. I mean, the policies enacted by both parties—and here we go down the uniparty road—have not been in the best interest of the American people, period. I mean, we, we went through a debt. Um, kind of chronological accounting of the debt. And the Democrats have historically spent on entitlements. The Republicans have historically spent on uh, defense spending. You can say, well, I mean, we need defense. Well, we need entitlements. I get all that. But we're not making a mockery of a system running like a fine-tuned machine. We're making a mockery of a mockery. And about half the country don't have any problem at all with continuing to make a mockery of of that mockery Does to have a call let's go there jason and marion hi you're on oh good morning there fellas ken
1: you just touched on it but maybe you could explain it a little bit
2: or dumb it down for my feeble mind how is it that it took how many tries for mccarthy to get speaker it was like 10 or something you had um jordan try to get in and they couldn't you know find common ground to get him in and then you have mike johnson and Every single one of them locked, step, and vote for him. How – why couldn't they do that, you know, the first two times? Why – I'm not understanding how they all of a sudden just, you know, united together, and I'm I'm glad they finally did, but what what happened? I'm not – I don't follow.
0: Well, let me – for some – thank you, Jason. Appreciate it. For some reason, and I'm not in the caucus, I don't have any idea what the yelling matches sound like, but they're yelling matches. I can assure you of that. There were about 8 or 10 or 12 members, moderate members in swing districts, that found Jim Jordan unacceptable. There were about eight, what I'd call Freedom Caucus hardliners, who found Scalise unacceptable. They never bought into McCarthy. The only reason McCarthy ever got there is he made all these promises to all these people. And when you make, I mean, he made promises to the moderates. He made promises to the Freedom Caucus. He made promises, uh, I know, Freedom Caucus in America first aren't really the same thing. The Freedom Caucus is more Tea Party. I mean, it's kind of a Tea Party orientation um, you know, I mean, it's some America first, and by and large, I mean, if you ask the members of the Freedom Caucus, are you America first or not? Ninety-nine percent would say I am America first. But but the Tea Party was kind of the um, ah, uh, the deficit spending and whatnot was really what drove down that road. But but you know, for whatever reason, and I, I'm not, I, I can't answer that question, Jason. To be honest, I don't know what got him in a place of getting you know all Republicans that voted voted for for uh, Mike Johnson. But but I know why Jordan didn't get there, because eight nine ten moderates said no, absolutely not under no condition. Will I vote for Jim Jordan? Same with Scalise. About eight six or eight members of the Freedom Caucus, the Nancy Mace, Matt Gates. I mean they've kind of stuck together through this. They were just animate. We're not bi- I mean we're not going to do it. We're not. We like Scott or Steve. Uh, we, we believe he could probably do a decent enough job, but he's not as far. Uh, down this America first road as we'd like our speaker to be. So, you know, if you look at, I mean, nobody gets everything they want, but I don't think there's any doubt that we have a far more America first speaker of the house today than we did um, the day they made the motion to vacate and remove Kevin McCarthy. I mean, I just never trusted. I'm sorry. I mean, I formed these opinions. It's unfair, but it's all I can do. I've never trusted a Republican from California except Ronald Reagan. I mean, I've never, I mean, I thought about it, you know, once, once McCarthy got speaker, it, it, it's unfair to him what I say, but I got, he looks California, he sounds California, he always gives the climate change extremists the time of day, that's kind of a California sort of thing, um, I just never thought McCarthy, and, and it's pretty obvious he was not. If McCarthy was an America First Republican, he wouldn't have had to make twenty deals with sixteen members. He just wouldn't have. But but he kinda had to convince them. And by convincing them, he promised them things. And then when it came to time to deliver on some of the promises, other members of the body said, I I didn't sign up for that. That's your deal. Well, I mean that, that gets you with a quandary, a pickle, as we like to say. And he couldn't get out. Take a break, back in a few. Welcome back. If I'm not mistaken, somebody's still on the phone. Is yeah. Bree still there? Bree you still there? Can- yeah,
3: yeah. Well uh, well, yeah. Uh, let me Give me a rare moment of humility here. Again, um, not a single one of us callers, including myself, as hard as it is to say, if we stop calling today, out of your 20 or 30 or 40 regular callers, y'all will still have a radio station tomorrow. I mean, a radio show tomorrow. You know, we're, I mean, so we need to kind of get off that arrogance. And, you know, God knows I'm as guilty as anyone. But... I really, really think that we need – I used to be the same way. I would I really want to ride up to the station and confront the professors. I mean, nothing I would like better than to help Jeff up and just blow him out of the water. Yeah, Save with uh, Miss Burke and all the rest of them. I would love to. But, heck, you got to torture people in war to get that kind of information out of them. These, these guys are giving it to us. free. Let them talk, guys. (laughs) We need to hear everything that they have to say because right now, if you own a house on the Isle of Palms and you are trying to maybe say, I got to pay my property taxes because I ain't this French Yankee that came down here. So I got to rip my house out a little bit. Most everybody I know has been there at some point. Well, now... The rich Yankees down there that have moved and retired and lived there year round, they're gonna pass a referendum stating that you can't rent your own property that you own. So that's so tell me if that does that sound uh, like freedom? Does that sound like capitalism? Does that sound anything like a Democrat Republic? No. They're gonna sit there and their goal is Again, what I've been preaching all along is, is they have two classes of people, you know, the ruling class and the serfs. So now, on the Isle of Ponds, you won't you won't be able to see any families walking out on the beach. The guy has been saving all year if this passes. Now, thankfully, there's people fighting it pretty hard. Ironically enough, you got to be on in, in bed with some bad guys to do this, and just uh, the big real estate people that all. Um, Rent some of the properties, but but on we got to understand these people, kid. And you can't understand them for four hours. Me and the rest of the guys just pat each other on the back about all these great comments we made. Great, great, great comment from Breeze. Well, great comment from Charles. Great comment from Dale. Way to go, guys! Way to go, guys! We ain't learned. We learned nothing. You know, we ain't learning nothing. But anyway, that's about two seconds. For this
0: morning. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. I mean, th- there's a couple of factors that come into play, and I don't think Rev would, I mean, I don't think Rev would lean on me to do one thing or, or the other, and um, I mean, he updated me on some of the Facebook conversation that was had yesterday. Okay. I and that's, seen that's the
1: rest of the story that Breeze is referring to. There was a, a Facebook thread, and I saw it where it was talking about some of the callers to the show and people had opinions, asking, and really they were, they were critical, why do we let Jeff on for so long? He just went, went on way too long, and, and we're being a little critical that we let him on for so long. But, you know, we, we've addressed that many times on the air. Well, I mean, to, to, to me,
0: we're concerned, the biggest concern I have, I can't speak for you, the biggest concern I have as an American is a media not willing to listen to my side of the story and report with credibility. That, that's the biggest concern that I have today. Um, I mean, the debt. The debt would be a kind of a, uh, I mean, that, that's a tangible issue. I mean, that's not in the abstract. What, what is fair in the media? I don't know. Two plus two equals four. $33 trillion is $33 trillion. That's why I'm so, uh, that's why I pay a lot of attention to the debt, because there's not a debate to be had about that. I mean, it is what it is, and we're going to have to deal with it some way in the way we choose to deal with it. The, the, the squishiness of the debate, the inexactness of the debate about censorship and, you know, I'm um, fair and balanced or not or the role of conservative media and, you know, the, the liberal newsrooms around America. I mean, that's, a, that's an argument of the abstract. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know what percentage of people working in America's newsrooms think about not letting someone like me speak my piece. I know that $33 trillion of debt is going to bite us in the ass one day. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that that will fundamentally change how we live our lives and the way the country progresses moving forward. But I'm not going to be that hypocritical. I'm not going to say one of the biggest concerns I have in my life is believing that my opinion is not allowed to be articulated in fair fashion. And the greatest experiment man has ever known about freedoms and liberties and self-government, one of the biggest concerns I have is my inability to get my voice in the public domain to be heard and seriously considered. And I'm not going to do that to people who have an alternate opinion, people who see the world fundamentally different than I do. I mean, we're in the business of conservative radio, but we're not excluding liberals. We're not excluding Democrats. I mean, we're no better than they are. I mean, if, if I do that, if Rev and I and Josh and I get together before and after the show and say, hey, you know these three calls are blackballed. I mean these three, I mean these three liberal callers that they, you know, they tick our audience off, so we're not going to let them on and, and say what they've got to say. See, I, I ascribe to the theory of if you let a liberal talk long enough, they'll show you who they are. I mean if, if you let uh, them, that's kind I mean, of what that, Breeze was well, saying. Well, I mean if you let them talk, I mean I think Breeze said you got to torture in war to get people to say <laughs> these things. <laughs> right. Um, and and I believe this. I sincerely think. That, um, that Williams and Jeff and Bert are good, decent people. I mean, I would never suggest they're they're anything other than that, that they, they have a different view of the host. They have a different view of the majority of its listenership. But we're not going to ever—I'm not. I can't speak for Rev. I don't think I—I I don't think Rev would ever do I'm never going to Josh and say, Josh, I don't feel like talking to Jeff today. I mean, it's been a bad day for the Republicans. Trump had a bad day at the courthouse. I, I don't want to hear that. Uh, when Williams calls in talking about January six, Josh, just kind of tell him, you know, we're moving on. I mean, we don't want to talk to him today. Maybe don't tell him anything. Just hold him on and wait him out. I mean, he'll find something else to do. He'll get the hint. He'll realize. I'm just not going to do that. I think there's too much of that in America today, and I think these walls we build upon one another, between one another, beside uh, one another. I just think they're 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 not in our best interest. And yes, we have a. We have a, uh, an audience that we're proud of. There, there is no doubt about that. We've gained a little traction in our, uh, in our morning drive segment of the day, or I think Rev calls it a day part uh, segment mm-hmm. of, of the day, and, uh, and I'm proud of that. But, but I'm not going to ever, 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 ever be a part of saying to Josh or Rev, I don't want to hear from Jeff today. I don't want to hear from Williams today. In fact, you know what? I, I wish we had more. People who disagreed call in. I mean, I know there are a lot of people out there listening who disagree because you text me sometimes. I bump into you at the gym, the restaurant, the ball game. I know you're out there. I wish we had three times as many people calling in that took exception with the political philosophizing of this not-so-esteemed radio show host. Take a break. Hey, before we take a break, you got a message.
1: Uh, yeah, just uh, just heard back from Reggie, actually, in his segment. He mentioned the West Florence band competition and that practice performance. Uh, and said it was at the stadium. actually found out that had been moved to more Middle. Okay. So just so make you're... that correction from uh, something Reggie said a couple minutes ago.
0: Good deal. Take a break. Back in a few. John uh, Josh is going to try to get a hold of John Decker while he's doing that. Let's go to the phone. I think someone's there. Bryce in Florence. Morning, Bryce. You're on.
4: Hey guys, yeah, I was gonna kind of call yesterday, and then I actually saw that post y'all were talking about. Um, but Ken, it's kind of like you said, it's kind of like Bree said that, um, like when you listen to to a lot of liberals, it the difference is, I mean, if 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 I hear something, and I'm like, you know what, I need to call and tell them what I think about that. Um, but you you see a lot of liberals where, man, I can't believe they said that. I need to call and change the way they think. <laughs> it's kind of Kind of their goal, not to, not to give their opinion, but to change the way Ken thinks or, or the listeners. And I mean, I think it's a great time for us all to go back and read that book, 1984, George Orwell, where, like, the government doesn't just want to hear you, say what 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 they want you to say. It's like they really want you to think and believe what they want you to think and believe, and, and you kind of get get small examples of that. And, and Ken, I think what frustrates a lot of the listeners isn't just hearing the other side because i agree with you i'd I'd like to hear more opposing views so it doesn't just become an echo chamber but where it's like they can't get past that you're not latching on to their argument it's almost like when you start pushing back it it drives them crazy and i mean you don't state things as fact i mean kind of your your trademark saying now is i believe i mean when they when they um, share some of your thoughts throughout the day. it always starts with I believe I believe I believe so um, it's just a, a, a radio show or or a, a morning show with with a different a different viewpoint of, of a lot of the other things that are on TV or on the radio or online and, and that's what we appreciate and we don't mind somebody like us or opposite of us calling in to give their viewpoint It, it almost just seems like this this thing where, they can't take it that that you have a different a, a different viewpoint than they do, and and, and they're not going to sleep well until until you start echoing everything everything they think. So appreciate your show. Appreciate you giving all the opposing viewpoints, but but at some point, uh, caller has got to be respectful
0: that it is your show. It's not their show. So thank you. Thank you, Bryce. Appreciate that. I mean, mm-hmm. I do begin the majority of my commentary with "I believe." I've learned in my 60 years of being on the planet that, that one of the qualities a man, and I'm talking literally, not figuratively, figuratively, not literally, a man needs to have is to be suspicious of his own beliefs. I am deeply suspicious of what I believe. I mean, I, 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 am, I am believing of what I believe, but I'm suspicious of why I believe it. And I do that every day. What we had someone say yesterday, I know exactly why Mike Johnson got elected speaker. No, you don't. Here we go again to 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 uh to the point. I believe that Johnson was a compromise. I believe that Johnson is a little more of an America firster than Kevin McCarthy. But I don't know any of that to be true. I have no idea what sorts of deals were cut in some of the caucus meetings. I mean, I have been on county council, and I've been a lieutenant governor presiding over the Senate. I've watched some of these deals be made. And I know for a fact what happened in those I was— you know, involved in, but I'm judging from afar. I don't know what sorts of of negotiations were made within uh, the caucus. I believe that Jordan was too much of an America firster and Emmer was too fun to establishment and they found somebody that everybody could live with. But I don't know that to be true, nor does anybody else in the media. I'm speaking to the media, great televisions, senior national (laughs) editor, (laughs) White House correspondent, John Decker is with us. John, good morning. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing great. Hope you're having a nice week and uh, good to be on your show today. We are glad to have you and and, and fortunate to have you as usual. Um, We do have a speaker. Um, Yesterday, Senator, excuse me, Speaker Mike, House member Mike Johnson got confirmed as Speaker of the House. Not a single Republican voted against. Um, What about Mike Johnson do you know that you think we would be interested in, Um, John? Well,
5: if you didn't know this, it's just the most remarkable rise to speakership uh, in the sense that he uh, became a member of Congress in 2017. That's when he was sworn in, and here he is six years later, and he's Speaker of the House. That's a pretty remarkable rise. Uh, He, as you mentioned, very conservative, comes from Shreveport, Louisiana, and I think that his demeanor is such... That he's palatable to every uh, wing of the Republican Party, from the moderates, those who come from districts that were won by Joe Biden, to the Freedom Caucus. The way he carries himself, a lot different uh, from the way that you mentioned Jim Jordan, from the way that Jim Jordan carries himself and and tries to appeal uh, or doesn't appeal to some of those members that uh, you and I may call moderate. They would just say, hey, we're from districts that were won by Joe
0: Biden. John is I mean this is a weird way to ask the question but I really don't know any other way in, in one hand I've got establishment Republican and in the other hand I've got America first Republican is it fair to say that he was the the, the, the palatable merging of those two energies and forces
5: oh absolutely you know I think that just forces lined up uh, such that he was the only one who could appeal to every wing of the Republican Party, every faction of the Republican Party, the people that preceded him as uh, the speaker designates, the nominees for the Republican Party, didn't tick every box, uh, and Mike Johnson does. And so he's got a lot of work ahead of him. You know, he doesn't have any experience in the leadership. Uh, We'll see if he can hit the ground running or whether he needs some help. And uh, fortunately for him, he's got a fellow Louisianan uh, who will be able to help him out. The number two House Republican also from Louisiana, that, of course, is Steve Scalise. So uh, it's going to be an interesting few weeks because we're facing that November the 17th deadline when our government runs out of money. And uh, his position is such that he's facing a lot of pressure from uh, the conservatives uh, in the in the Republican base in the House of Representatives. But He's also got to cooperate if you're going to keep the government funded with
0: Democrats who control the Senate.
5: So this is going to test him to a large to a large extent.
0: Let's go to subject number two, and I want to talk to you about sure. the um uh, the, the the Republicans have historically been more hawkish than than the Democrats. It seems there's been somewhat of an inversion there. Yeah. Um, Republicans have a kind of an anti-interventionist streak within the party. Now they're trying to hash out and say grace over. Um, Biden has had some remarks recently about what America should do uh, relating to Israel. Um, what exactly does the Biden administration believe our role and responsibility is to the uh, eventual war between uh, Israel Israel, and, and Hamas?
5: Well, it's, it's, I think, pretty remarkable what we've seen. You know, he's facing a lot of pressure from the left wing in his party, uh, and he's essentially ignoring that progressive uh, wing of the party, uh, and he's doing what, You know, I think it's always been a bipartisan uh, effort, which is supporting the state of Israel, uh, supporting our only ally in the Middle East, and he's put this aid package. uh, uh, Sent it uh, over to Congress. The Senate's going to take it up. I think it's going to pass with strong bipartisanship. I don't know the number uh, that they'll ultimately land upon, but uh, I think it's going to be pretty significant in terms of aid for both Israel and Ukraine. And the the Ukraine element to that package is going to be problematic for Republicans on the House side of the Capitol, including the House Speaker, Mike Johnson. Uh, So it's going to be interesting to see how all of that plays itself out. And of course, Mike Johnson uh, is playing by the same rules that uh, Kevin McCarthy played upon, uh, which is uh, he's got to listen to his party in terms of putting legislation on the floor of the House of Representatives for an up or down vote. So John, a lot of pressure will be, apl- be placed upon him uh, in short order.
0: John, is there any if the if the Ukraine if the Israeli funding attached to Ukrainian funding cannot get out of the house is there any interest yeah. of the Senate in separating Israel funding from is the Ukraine funding?
5: Well, I think that that would be plan B. Uh right now, uh, you know, plan A is uh, to Pass a funding bill that has funding for Israel, Ukraine, border security. That's also included in there, Uh, and and we'll see how you know that's just a wish list, so to speak, for uh, the President Biden and his administration. We'll see you know how the leadership in the Senate uh, take up this bill and what they construct.ed There has been, as you know, strong bipartisanship on both Israel and Ukraine in the U.S. Senate. Uh, We have Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, both very supportive of those efforts to support those democracies.
0: John, thank you. Appreciate you joining us. Great explanations. Have a great day, sir. You too. Thanks a lot, Ken. Bye-bye. Great television senior national editor, White House correspondent John Decker. Um, I'll I'll say this as a former uh, politician, that is a very easy way to determine how effective Speaker Johnson is going to be or not. Um, One of the things I like about the Speaker is his scorecard with funding for Ukraine. He gets a very poor mark in uh, and, and the weekly ratings of, and this is all consultant, lobbyist-driven. Um, you know the chamber rates you this week, and you know the um, uh, the 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 five hundred one c three organ. Everybody has a scorecard, and they want to be relevant and important in that world of creating policy and advancing and advancing policy. But if Mike Johnson is as out is as outspoken. Uh, in defiance of funding for Ukraine, can he effectively lead the House into separating what the Senate sends over Ukrainian funding from Israeli funding and border security? I think the majority of House members, even Republicans, support Israeli funding and border security. They don't support Ukrainian funding, and if if and Johnson's going to get a bill, I mean, there's no doubt he's going to get a bill. That includes Ukrainian, um, Israeli, and border security funding. Can he effectively separate Ukrainian from border security and Israeli funding, get it back to the Senate, and, um, and convince them this is a better bill uh, in the American First movement Dan, than the— uh, That'll be kind of interesting. Keep your eye on J.D. Vance. Keep your eye on J.D. Vance of the Senate and what he says about the potential of a bill coming back from the House that excludes or separates— Ukrainian defense spending. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. If you go back to Bryce's point and Breeze's point, and I don't want to point fingers and goad somebody into calling in and being uh, uniquely different, but the majority of people who call in to the show and take exception with my points of view are very often not expressing their own. They're just making me validate or defend my points of view. It's a little bit of a, um, I got gotcha you and what about ism. Uh, it's never Biden's a great president. Look at the economy. Look at gas prices. Have you been to the grocery store? Aren't things wonderful around here? Right. Uh, remember restoring order? And some I mean, of fueled with
1: a little bit of, you know, Trump derangement well, me, syndrome. That, that's probably the
0: it. basis of it is Trump derangement syndrome. And I've never gotten that. I mean, I understand the personal concern you have with somebody like Trump being in the White House because we've never had anybody in modern times like that. I mean, in the good old days, we had Andrew Jackson, I mean, we had some very um, contrarian, rebellious personalities. Not really, uh, we had some irreverent figures early in American politics inhabit the White House, um, and, and I guess we got so accustomed, you know, to the buttoned-up process of, I mean, it's, it's really a theatric production. But, but I've not heard anybody call in and say, what a great job. We told you that if you got this nut out of the White House and put an adult there, everything would be back um, to normal, look at the world around us. I mean, how do, you, how do you argue that Trump was Trump lacked the maturity and reverence to be a president? You've got Hamas invading Israel. You've got Russia invading Ukraine. You've got China toying around with the idea of invading Taiwan. You've got millions of people that we don't know who they are coming into our nation. I mean, let, let's debate some of those, but it's always, the, you know, did you read the letter that Jenna Ellis wrote? And I'm like, wow, dude! Bad
1: day for Trump yesterday.
0: You know what? I'm more worried about. I'm more worried about World War III. (laughs) Right? I'm, I'm more worried about nuclear attacks than I am the letter that Jenna Ellis wrote or read, and what Mark Meadows may or may not have said. I saw an article yesterday about Meadows, and it's so interesting. Meadows stood by his story. He was challenged. He stood by his story. He was challenged again. He stood by his story. He wrote a book, accounting his story. And now, in the ninth inning, he's changing his story. And you don't believe the government has coerced him? I mean, you you don't believe that the government has threatened him with, with some sort of, I mean, and it was as if, you know, we're watching the judicial system play itself out right before our very eyes. This great and mighty system of justice that America has always ferrets out those who should be found out. Nah, I mean, he's being coerced. I mean, all of these people are being coerced. And we're spending millions of dollars. The world is blowing up right before our very eyes. And there are those out there more concerned with the letter that Jenna Ellis was forced to read. It's like a hostage letter. I mean, it's like somebody standing off camera with a gun pointed at her head. You read this or else. You read this or else. So when Mark Meadows gets on the witness stand as a government witness, I mean, Trump's lawyer is going to say, Mr. Meadows, in 2017, you had a chance. No, in 2021, you had a chance to retract your opinion, and you didn't. You stood by your opinion. Again, I mean, they're, they're going to chronicle. I mean, They're going to just say, you know, on, on 37 different occasions, you were asked to change your opinion about your opinion on the uh, 2020 presidential election, and you didn't. You never did. I mean, you were asked over and over and over and over and over and over again to change your opinion, and you didn't. In fact, Mr. Meadows, you wrote a book. I've got this book in my hand, and this book basically confirms your suspicion about the 2020 election. But now you have a different opinion. So the guy that has lied 37 times is now telling the truth? Or did you tell the truth 37 times, and now you're a liar? Because, you, you, you know, you produced a hostage video with a lady named Jenna Ellis. I mean, we got Palestinians killing Jews. We got children being beheaded. We've got, you know, Russia, expansionist Russia on the march, trying to get a, a warm water port. We've got millions of illegals making their way into our country. And I'm supposed to be worried about a letter that Jenna Ellis is reading about what may or may not have happened in the 2020 presidential election? Let's talk about your guy for a while. Let's talk about Sir Joe Biden, President Biden. Let's talk about him and his record. Who's been to the grocery store lately? Who's put gas in their car lately? Who's watched him fall over a sandbag? Who's watched him board an airplane on the um I guess the um where, where the help goes in, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, he can't make himself. I mean, he's not man enough, not able, not not physically nor mentally able to walk up a flight of stairs to get on a uh you know the well, Air Force One, so let's make him go up the short steps. I mean, what sort of message does that send to the world? Let's go to the phone. Weak. That's what it is. Incredibly does. weak. I mean, it's, it's not just weak. It's incompetence. I mean, it's incompetence personified. And, and half the country want to worry about a letter that some lawyer wrote about an election that was. If you beat Trump in 20, you'll beat him in 24. I mean, that's always been, I mean, if if you, (laughs) if you beat him in 20, you'll beat him again in 24. You know what I think? You're not sure you beat him in 20 and you don't want to risk it again in 24.
1: Barry and Chirag. Good morning, Barry. You're on.
6: Good morning, guys. Uh, yeah, that about yesterday. So Jenna Ellis, you know, she's, she's not Trump anymore because she's not getting paid by Trump. Uh, she raised $200,000 online and then pleads out so where's that two hundred thousand dollars go to on jenna ellis so you know she's a drifter she's going to get her money either way she's going to say what they tell her to say and on mark meadows anybody ever had the government come after you on on federal charges the government gets a a plea deal 95 percent of the time you can't go against the government you take the plea deal there's a lot of people in prison now with time that they, they don't need to have because they had to plead because they don't have the money to go against the government. It's 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 a shakedown. That's what the government does. So when they come after you like that, sure, you probably do need to take the plea. You you'll change your story real quick. And and on World War Three, we really need to be concerned about this. I, and and we're concerned about a lawyer making a statement. We we got a we got a president that has no clue what he's doing. We have a secretary of defense that is clueless. We have Mark Milley that just left, that turned the government, uh, that turned the military into a woke uh, drag queen. I don't know if you've seen it Ken, online where these soldiers, and then they flip over to be a drag queen and they brag about it. So those are going to be fighting. That's going to be the fight. And, and, and you know, they went after MAGA and and what is MAGA? MAGA is consist of country, rule, America, farm boys, down south kids, and 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 they they say white supremacists, so nobody's going in the military anymore, Ken. So nobody they, they can't get the numbers. So if you have a kid between sixteen and twenty eight or sixteen and thirty two You might want to be concerned because the draft could be possibly coming back. So if you're anti-Trump or just think about your kid possibly having to go in because you can't find enough people to go fight because you degraded them over the last six years and called them white supremacists and nobody wants to go in the military now. So now your anti-Trump is going to have your kid fighting a foreign war because that – low life Joe Biden in the Democratic Party has no clue what they're doing and they want to get us in a war. And we're broke and we're going to run out of money. But y'all are worried about never Trump. You'll never vote for Trump. Oh, he's just terrible. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. Call them out, Ken, every single day. Call them out. Cuz they don't have a plan, Ken. Their plan is destroy America. So when, when they come to come for those never-Trumpers, I'm not saving your sorry you, sorry, you-know-what. I'm going to watch from the roof. It's going to be on y'all. I'm not saving you, your tail. tell. You call me white racist and all that stuff, I'm going to let you just get what you deserve. Y'all have a good one.
0: Thank you, Barry. Appreciate it. 843 Take a break. Back in a few. I asked Rev during the break if he'd seen this, um, I guess it's a meme on Facebook. Is it a meme? Is that what you call it? On Facebook and Twitter? Or is one on one social media platform and something else on one oh, another? A meme
1: is a meme. They're all okay. memes. Yeah. They're all
0: memes? They're all okay. memes, yeah. Have you seen the one, Josh, when it talks about they've got King James Scripture and it's talking about cussing, and it actually says C-U-S-S-I-N. So I'm thinking the editor may be from Pamplico because um, there's no G on cussing. <laughs> um, but they're talking about, I mean, they're quoting Scripture and foul language. And I've told Rev before, my language isn't salty it gets colorful i mean I, I you know i've been in a lot of locker rooms and i grew up in a metal fabrication business and it wasn't gosh darn it you know what i mean it, it was a lot of other things and i've tried to barely be guarded or on guard about you know i just just cleaned it up and once again I, i've never had salty language i am guilty of dugout talk i mean i'm as guilty as the day is long about colorful language i guess but but i started thinking about the the, the meme i saw when i said, okay because um, they're basically saying, you know, clean language is good and foul language is, is, is all bad. Would you rather somebody tell you the damn truth or a John Brown lie? <laughs> <laughs> that's,
1: that's great. <laughs> <laughs> just
0: just kind of, right. you know, I mean, you know, I, I'd rather someone tell me the damn truth than the John Brown lie, right, right. despite the cussing right, right. that which, that may well, have been. And, and
1: which is worse, the yeah. cussing or the lie? Well, that's kind of where I'm yeah. headed,
0: is a John Brown lie better than the damn truth right as, as far as the king james originalist uh, we talk about Supreme court nationalists and originalist well, anyway anyway I, um i digress so let's get back to serious business here because we got a very serious man on the phone with us he is the scgop chairman co-chair of the national party drew mckissick good morning sir how are you I'm doing
7: well, but i figured you're going to have to explain to some people who might have moved to South Carolina
0: what a John Brown lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, but I, I know you know, so so that's good enough for me. That's good enough for me right now. Drew, we we, we got a speaker. I've got a theory, and I want to get your take on this. Um, sure. The theory is, I mean, I call an asymmetrical relationship, you call somewhat of a misalignment. Fair enough. I mean, anyway, we, we're, we're sorting through some – issues as a party i mean you you've said we're always sorting through issues i'm arguing these are my um, these may be a little more amplified than your normal you know battle for ground within uh, the republican party but it seems to me that you know it took a long time but we got to somebody and i want to say both sides can tolerate but we got to somebody that can generate some consensus about what the governing I don't know, that the governing priorities of our party are going to be. Is that a fair analysis? I think so. Uh, You know, I think you might have had a mix here of uh,
7: folks who were looking for the right man and uh, folks who got exhausted by the process. (laughs) Who knows you might have a little bit of a mix of that. uh, Those who, uh, uh, you know, were tired of, uh, uh, well, I would say some, you know, rightly so, being blamed for blowing the whole thing up to begin with. Uh, But all that aside, we are where we are now. Uh, we've got a good man a speaker. Uh, I know a lot of folks who are very, very close to him that I'm close to and can attest to his uh, his well, not just his views and his, his uh, principles and ideology, but you know, just where he is in terms of being a good man um, and, and also the type who doesn't have. Uh, you know, let, let's say uh, a negative history with folks in the caucus that would make things personal. Which is important because, you know, politics is about people, as I say, it's spelled P-E-O-P-L-E, uh, and that comes down to relationships and being able to build them and maintain them and not blow them up. Uh, he's uh, in a good position as far as that is concerned from everything I've heard, uh, and of course, the principles he's enunciated right off the bat when he took the gavel, uh, I think the line right up in the wheelhouse of uh, the message that the Republican Party needs to get across.
0: Drew, what are the priorities from your perspective? I mean, he, he, he talked about, I mean, he extended an olive branch to uh, King Jeffries and the Democrats, and then he talked about working together to secure the border and got a resounding round of booze from from the Democrat. I mean, is there any place <laughs> that, that we can govern effectively when the Republicans control the House and the Democrats control the Senate?
7: Well, that's really the thing, and, and that's really what took you back to the whole uh, logic, or I think— lack thereof for blowing the whole thing up in the House to begin with on the Republican side. Uh, there's a limited amount of room to actually get productive things done when you have that severe of, you know, disagreements with the other party and the other party controls the other half of the legislature and the White House. So, you know, and there are a lot of things that we want to see done that we have been working for a long time to see done. You know, and we live in a, you know, in, a, in an instant culture. You know everything, fast food, and you know everything else, and the attention span of a nap. Uh, and you know we're we're in a situation where we didn't get in this mess that we're in, nationally speaking, fiscally speaking, you know, just about every way you can look at it. We didn't get in this mess overnight. We're surely not going to get out of this mess overnight. Which means, you know, that it was, I think, unreasonable for people to assume that, well, hey, we got a Republican speaker now, we can get everything done that we want. Well, we can pass stuff and then we can send it over and see what happens in the Senate. It you know, probably doesn't pass or gets vetoed or whatever. There's a limited amount of room that you've got to actually move the ball in a forward direction. And, you know, so this is not the case of being able to get the touchdown all the time. Sometimes this is going to be, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust, as they say. But I, we were making progress. Let's not forget that, you know, uh, it was because of McCarthy to begin with that we actually got an impeachment investigation into Joe Biden and looking into Hunter Biden laptop, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, You know, there were productive things that were done and that we were probably on the cusp of being able to get more money put into border security that we all agree needs to be done. Of course, you know, now with all the immigrants, uh, illegal immigrants who are showing up in uh, blue cities around the country, uh, thanks to Governor Abbott down in Texas, uh, you know, now we've got Democrats crying for more border security, which I find kind of ironic, but, you know, set that aside. I mean, it's, I mean, look, there's only so much that you can get done, given the way that uh, things break out now in Washington, D.C., and that's even with a Mike Johnson as a speaker and a Kevin McCarthy as a speaker. Uh, You know, I kind of was joking with some people, you know, a week or so ago, after all this happened, the the reality is who's going to want the job of speaker when you've only got a four or five seat majority uh, and a couple of people who are willing to blow it up if they don't get all they want? Uh, And the fact that you have to work with the other uh, body, the Senate, in order to actually get stuff passed. uh, You know, no matter what kind of conservative champion you would have a speaker, Jim Jordan or anybody else, I'm just kind of counting down the amount of time that some people are going to start calling him, you know, a rhino in the enemy, so to speak, Uh, which is, you know, ridiculous and far from the truth because, again, you've got legislative realities, and you understand that haven't served before.
0: Uh, Well, let's let's go to a legislative reality. I want you to play this out with me because I'd love to get your take. Um, and we can get inside baseball here for a second. So the Senate passes out a bill that Biden likes that includes funding for border security, Ukraine, and Israel. Mike Johnson is opposed to additional funding for Ukraine. How does he work through that? Why why are the Republicans in the Senate more willing to fund Israeli and ukrainian security i guess it's american security by sending money to ukraine and israel but in the house it seems to be a a much steeper climb
2: Uh, you know
7: i can't speak exactly the motivations of the guys in the senate in terms of individual issues there but what i will say uh is i think there is a move and this of course the white house supports this and senate democrats support this and a good number of senate republicans In terms of trying to mix it all into one bill because they're hoping that people who like one half of it would, you know, that didn't like the other half would vote for the whole thing. I come out from the opposite direction. I think the House will as well. I've talked to a good number of House members that, you know, their thought is if you were to split the bills into two pieces or even three pieces, but at least two Ukraine on one side, the Israel stuff on the other, both bills would pass the house. They would pass with different percentages of either party supporting them, but both bills would pass the house. But the more important thing politically, and this is where you get down into the politics of it, the election politics of it, is to put Democrats in the House and even in the Senate when you throw, the, throw it back to them, uh, on the spot in terms of where they stand in terms of support for Israel. And that's a place, you know, we're given all the stuff that we've seen going on around this country, you know, from the rapid progressive left, which has a home in the Democrat Party. Uh, the more that we can throw a spotlight on that and where they are in terms of support for Israel, that's the smart political move. Uh, I have pretty good ideas that that's what you'll see uh, Speaker Johnson do.
0: Drew, what data point do you pay attention to in the House races? I mean, obviously right track, wrong track, approval rating of the president, what party he uh, associated with. But I'm thinking about A lot of Americans believe we made a mockery of electing a speaker. Some Republicans believe we made a mockery of the mockery that has been the American government for the last 25 or 30 years. But when you start thinking about the midterms and presidential cycles, uh, the Republicans are trying to gain control of the Senate. I think the odds are stacked in their favor there. But what sort of data point do you pay close attention to when we start talking about House races and who wins here and who Mm -hmm. plays better there? Well, you do have
7: a couple of things that you look at.
0: I mean, obviously, uh, you know, right track,
7: wrong track numbers in those districts are positioned on, you know, Biden versus a Republican nominee. Uh, Those things come into play. The bigger thing, though, to me is what's the election history of the district? Uh, What are the registration numbers in the district? You know, say, if you're looking at states that have partisan voter registration, what's the number of, you know, registered Republicans, registered Democrats, registered independents? Uh, those who vote Republican primaries versus Democrat primaries; those who don't vote either party's primary. I mean, this is about voters at the end of the day, and getting at least you know one more vote than the other side. Uh, so, registration numbers count, turnout numbers you look at, uh, and fundraising numbers you look at. Uh, you know, typically, if you raise more money in the opposition, you're in a better spot to win. Uh, you got to be able to pay to organize and communicate your message. You now, how are our candidates doing on fundraising? Those things mixed together. Uh, and you know then beyond that, and this gets a little bit more you know in the weeds as you go forward in the election cycle, but it definitely comes into play especially toward the end to, in, in my book, uh, is whenever you get good polling and more detailed modeling as we refer to it. So in other words, taking polling data and our analytics folks modeling that data on top of the voter registration files where we have you know three to four hundred, Data points on every registered voter, and so we can you know we might not know specifically how Ken Ard feels because Ken Ard hadn't told us about an individual issue, but we know all the different data points we have on Ken Ard that connect back to people who we do know something about and that he's related to them in some kind of a way, and that tells us something about Ken Ard. So we can model the data uh, according to issues, Second Amendment issues, uh, you know, fiscal issues, pro-life issues, and you, know, you name it to build a profile. Of the folks in that district, and it tells us what are the main issues in that district. And, you know, so several years ago, we picked up a sheriff's race uh, in Saluda County from a Democrat. Had always been Democrat. Why? Because we knew out of all forty-six counties in South Carolina, based on our data modeling, in Saluda County, defund the police and security was the number one issue in Saluda County, and was the hottest uh, issue. I mean, out of all counties in South Carolina, it was the hottest there in that county. So we moved everything, everything back to defund the police, personal security, uh, everything that sheriff's candidate you know had in the hopper that they were going to talk about. You know, put it all in the trash, and you spend all your time on defund the police and personal security. Anyone, uh, that's the kind of thing we did with house races here in South Carolina last year. You know, we picked up, we won eight, lost ones. We had a net pickup of seven state house districts last time here in South Carolina. For those districts, we had ones that Sherman left town. Why? Because we focused on the issues in those districts and and good data. Uh, And that makes a big difference.
0: That's when politics gets scientific and uh, mathematics. (laughs) Mathematics always (laughs) went. Last question, Drew McKissick, SCGOP chair, co-chair of the National Party with us. Last question. There's kind of a – there's a sentiment amongst some Republicans that believe it's in all of our best interests to end the presidential campaign, not have any more uh, debates, spend the money on trying to beat um, Democrats. What say you about that proposition?
7: Well, first off, you know, we're talking about spending money. What money are you talking about? Whose money? Yeah, so when it comes to, say, for instance, putting on debates, uh, the party doesn't pay any money to put on these debates. The networks do. Uh, that's, that's the deal we put together with them. So in some cases, they plunk down between 2 and $3 million to put on you know nationally televised debate. Uh, that's the negotiations we engage in. In terms of the process itself, though, here's the thing. You have to remember, no matter how many people within the party want a particular person as a nominee, we need to go through the process. Because once we get to a convention and we actually you know, crown a nominee, if you will, we have to be in a position where everybody else who wanted somebody else feels like everybody got a fair shake. Everybody had to pro- let the process play out. Because when it's, you know, when the convention is over, we have to put the party back together again to win. You win through unity. You lose through, you know, subtraction and division. We need addition and multiplication. Everybody's got to feel like they had their shot and that it was a fair process. And if we do that, it's easier to put it back together. If they feel like it was short-circuited or it was rigged, uh, then you're going to lose people. And some maybe you, don't even, maybe you don't lose their vote. Maybe at the end of the day they do vote straight Republican, but the point is you'll lose them in terms of work. Yeah, I take somebody who will work for me over people who will just vote for me any day of the week and twice on Sunday. they got to feel like the process has played out fairly.
0: Well explained. Drew, thank you for your time, my man. Hope to talk again next week.
7: Yes, sir. Y'all have a good
0: one. Thank you. That's kind of an interesting inside look. It really comes down to science and math. I mean, it is candidates, good candidates, bad candidates, good messaging, bad ca- messaging, good fundraising, bad fundraising. But uh, eventually it all bottlenecks the science and math of politics. Two beats one every time. You know, uh, 81 million beats 75 million every single time. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a second. You know, one of the first things I remember when Rev and I started this crazy journey on radio, one of the first things, we're talking about politics and being a candidate and and, and being in office, and it's still about math. I mean, it, it, it's about campaigns. It's about candidates. It's about yard signs. It, it's about radio ads. It's a, it's a lot of things that go in to it. But on the other side of success or failure is math. I mean, it's data. I mean, it it is what it is. Cahaley and I would always, you know, you had the best debate you've ever had, but nobody watched it. Nobody saw it. Nobody listened to it. You sucked at this and there were, you know, we had pretty good viewership, pretty good listenership, pretty good participation. So it's all about taking that data and making something of it. And the Democrats historically have been much better. And I, I'm going to give uh, the transformational president Barack Obama a lot of credit here. He ushered in an era of data gathering, um, uh, you know, um, data discernment, what to make up. You gather all this data. Okay, I've got all this data. Well, what do I do with it now? And the Obama team was cutting edge when it comes to how to message, how to take that data and turn it into votes. I mean, in says you got all this data. I think the Republicans are better now than they were, but I still don't think they're anywhere near as good as the Democrats are. And I give Obama and that machine they built a lot of credit. I mean, they were really, really bright, liberal-minded young people who understand um, data, data gathering. Uh, Once again, it's called data discernment in, in the world of politics. And we were sitting over here, you know, putting stamps on the back of envelopes. And uh, and we just got behind on the digital era of American politics, and they had a. Uh, I mean, give the devil his due, and literally and figuratively, um, you know, he was a charismatic, um, just just kind of a um, a captivating political figure. Is that fair? I mean, despite and you're not caring yeah. much for his platform or agenda, I mean, he was a a captivating political figure and was surrounded by. A lot of young, smart people who understood we're not gonna win campaigns like we did twenty, twenty five years ago. Um, here's what we're going to do. And I think Democrats, I mean I think Republicans were like, Do what? You mean you can take that computer and do that? You can okay. Um let's go to you the know, I think you're exactly
1: right. Here's Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Uh good morning. Uh, the
8: great show as always, but uh I think you're right on it, Ken, and uh, Drew, it, it really encouraged me when he said that the followers are important because my my brief and uh, sundry experience with politics is like, you've got primary voters, you've got voters, you've got followers, you've got workers, and you got donors, but those followers are the key to getting your message out and moving the grassroots in your favor. And you got to get those followers motivated. The only thing that worried me about what Drew was talking about was he said, after the convention, we got to get our people together. You better start planning to get those people healed up and, and and comfort those people that their candidates didn't make it in the convention before the convention ends. That's got to start then. He's, he's, I hope he's planning for it now that that's pretty much all i got to say
0: about Thank that. Thank you, Mike. I went to a unity breakfast. I won the Republican primary in South Carolina, and I went to a unity breakfast, and it was so awkward. I mean, there, there were three of us. Ralph Norman, to begin with, was in our race. Tim Scott was in our race to begin with. They eventually got out. But well, what are they unifying at a well, unity you breakfast? You eat eggs and grits and kind of, um, you know, say, hey, I'm not mad with you any longer. Forget everything I said for the last year. I didn't mean any of it. You know, when I called you a no count, no good scoundrel, I mean, I didn't mean that. We're just in the throes of a campaign. That's kind of an interesting proposition. I don't know how. Um, you got, you got a lot of. I mean, I've said this before. Politicians are like everybody, just more so. So you got a room full of people who are just more so full of themselves, more so opinionated, more so confident there on opinions. Uh, you got one winner. You got two, three, four losers. And you're asking everybody to kind of hug one another, pray together, eat some grits and eggs, and leave there. And everybody's united walking out of the same front. I can tell you what I did. I went individually to the people in my race. And, uh, I mean, the one thing I didn't do, I don't remember a time that I got real negative. But I don't remember a time the polls had us far behind. I've always wondered. I mean, the only race, I mean, I never polled in county council. I polled at lieutenant governor, and I never saw a poll. That had me behind. So I don't know what I would have done if I were six behind or seven behind. Uh, I don't know what I would have said. I mean, I managed to admit that. I'd like to believe that I'd keep it clean, but I don't know. I don't have any idea. If the low
1: road was your path to victory. I
0: I had a chance to go after a guy, but we were nine up on him. Why why do I go after a guy and cause concern and controversy when, but what if I'd have been nine down? I mean, you know, what would I have done? I mean, I, I probably would have gone after him and used some of that negative campaigning and information. I
1: have to believe the being the victor at the Unity Breakfast is the more fun role. Well I mean
0: it's just a lot more fun, but you you really look around and say, hey, I got some Republican I got more Republican votes than anybody, but I didn't get them all. I mean this this person got, you know, 12%. This person got nine percent. I need those. I need all of those folks on my team to win, you know, a general and it's hard to it's hard to work through that. What I did, I mean I went to the Unity Breakfast. I tried to be humble. I mean, I tried my best to be humble and thank God and thank the Republican voters and, you know, and all these good things. And I think I wore a half-orange, half-garnet tie, you know, to show true Oh, wow. Truth, you know, I'm kidding <laughs> That is <laughs> unity. I mean, if i find not a bad idea. <laughs> anyway, um <laughs> being the true statesman that I am and not mm. not politicking. But, no, I went to every single candidate. I called and I said, hey, you got a moment? When? Tomorrow. And I rode to Somerville. And I rode to Columbia. And I rode to York County. And I sat down and I said, look, uh, you know, what happened happened for some stupid reason. I'm the last man standing, but I need you. And if there's something you have an interest in, when I get there, let me know. I mean, you know, are you interested in the, the ch- whatever, whatever. And, I, you know, I don't know that I can move mountains, but I'm willing to go to bat for you if there's something in politics you want to pursue. And I did that individually. I didn't sit at a a group meeting and we all, you know, kind of passed the, the, you know, passed the. The keg around, you know where I'm headed. I mean, it was not a, a party. It was a um a sincere effort to try and convince that person. I, I got no idea why I'm here and you're there, but it is. And, and I need you to do what you can to help me. And everybody had an ask. <laughs> Rest assured, everybody had uh, an ask. Let's go
1: to the phone. Jim and Florence. Good morning, Jim. You're on.
9: Hey, good morning. Hey, Ken, who was the guy that ran as a third party against Lindsey Graham the last go-round? Hmm. Uh, the Constitution candidate. Yeah, but I can't
0: think of who. To, I, I can see his face, but I can't think of his name.
9: But remember the Democrats and Jamie Harrison ran political ads in his favor trying to split the Republican vote. Yes. Why are—what are, are we—well, I don't, I don't know what's going on, but the Republican Party should be fighting to get Cornell West, um, who's running as some third—I don't know what party, but, you know, leftist candidate— um, on ballots, especially in swing states like uh, uh, Minnesota, Michigan, these other places, and then Philadelphia, we need him on the ballot there. Get him on the ballot in Georgia, um, and then and then push him as well. Um, same thing with uh, Robert Kennedy. Get him on the ballot, and then start pushing ads about how how much he hates guns and and all these other things, and. Begin to splinter that Democrat vote. Um, we've got to get as dirty as they get. We got to get as nasty as they get. We got to get as creative as they get. Um, and we're stuck in this. I think we're stuck in what about two thousand six, two thousand seven, where we think it's all about policy. Um, thank you, kids.
0: Thank you, Jim. Uh, hold on to that because I want to go there. There's kind of an interesting analogy I can use we began today's show with NILs, the collectives of college football, um, Jim's on to something, and I want to try to explain something that I know is happening. To what, to what degree, I don't know. But, but I know that there is being money raised now in what we call the world of IEs. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, I want to use a, a comparison here. We began the show this morning talking about NILs and collectives and college football and your are you know, your your big donors at Clemson in South Carolina are given enough money to build football operations buildings and indoor practice facilities and support all the other Olympic sports and whatnot. But but we're getting to a point now, and I've seen this. I, I don't know about Clemson, but in South Carolina, you're getting to a point where you've got a list of a hundred donors, and they're the wealthiest donors that have shown an interest in helping the university. And when you go to them, about nil they're going like hey man i've given and given and given and i bleed garnet i bleed orange but i got to i mean at some point time i got to say enough's enough that's what's happening in politics kahaley's in the independent expenditure business you're talking about pumping uh cornell west in certain states pumping rfk jr in certain certain states that makes perfect sense but it costs a lot of money and the the independent expenditures are set aside of the campaign. You're going to the guy to ask him to give the RNC a million dollars. And then you go back next year. Peter Thiel, just use Thiel as an example. You go to Thiel and ask for a million dollars. You go to Thiel and ask for another million. And then you go to Thiel and ask for a million to support Cornell West at this independent expenditure or Robert Kennedy. And Teal sooner or later goes, Look, I've got it. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I've got it. But damn, I mean, is it that important? I mean, I want to win the election. Clemson wants to win football games. South Carolina, but is it at some point in time? Wealthy people say, don't I have an obligation to make the world a better place? I mean, I, I've got it to give. There's no doubt me giving you another million dollars to pump RFK Jr. or Cornel West is not going to change my lifestyle. Still got a house in Vail. I still got a house in London. I still live, you know, but but I just, at some point in time, I got to say enough's enough. I got to look in the mirror. And I think that's happening in college football, and I know it's happening in in politics. Some of these mega donors, are beginning to say, I, I, I don't know, man. I mean, I, you know, I've given $10 million to the DNC. I've given 11 $12, 15000000 to, to candidate X, Y, or Z, and I'm just not doing that anymore. And i got to believe some of the uber-wealthy at Clemson in South Carolina are kind of sort of saying some of the similar sorts of things. Let's go to the phone. Charles in the market. Morning, Charles.
10: Good morning. You know, uh, because of my business, I tell you, I subscribe to the King Street paper and the, uh, Bull paper, and the Darlington paper. Every one of them has got a full-page ad for Robert F. Kennedy Jr.
11: Uh, in there every
10: week. But they forget to mention some of the things that your caller mentioned we, we might need to spread. Uh, they never mention that he's a gun control uh, freak. They never mention that he's a, a climate alarmist. They always talk about uh, respect and tradition in the Kennedy family. So, uh, but anyway, that's not why, that's not what I call for. I was shocked this morning. I want to ask you a question, uh, Ken. On October 8th, just give me a guess off your head. On October 8th, what do you think the, was the percentage of Americans who supported Israel that Sunday morning? After the massacre over there on Saturday, Hmm. what do you think that number was?
0: 90%?
10: I was going to say 85%. The media in this country have gone to work to try to fix that problem. And you mentioned a poll yesterday, a Harvard-Harris poll, where young people, 18 to 24, 48% favor Hamas over Israel saw a poll on Twitter this morning. Now, it was an unscientific poll, and you've seen them where somebody says, hey, here's my poll, blah, blah, blah. The question was, what is the most evil government ever? And there were three choices. Nazi Germany in 1939, Israel 2023, and not sure. And as of about two hours ago, Nazi Germany, 1939, was at 15 percent, and Israel, 2023, was at 73 percent. And that has changed that much in, uh, what, 18 days Um, as a result of, of the damn media in this country and the BS that they broadcast every day. And I think we're just confirms we are living in a in a clown world. We are living in a clown world that they can do that and have that effect on our people. Again, not trying to sway anybody in my way of thinking. Just want to share my thoughts.
0: Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. You know, and I mean, I don't know that I coined this phrase, but uh, I was talking about the the media trying to create a narrative is still the case. I mean, the media, we've had a, a decentralization of news. There's no doubt about that. Uh, ABC, NBC, and ABC News are not as influential as they once were, but they're still influential. I mean, they're still well-funded. They're well-staffed. They, they're, they're very creative in how they pitch their stories, how they manipulate and distort, you know, the facts and truths. Um, it is bizarre to me. And it's not Palestine. When I read the poll, the harvard Harris poll, I I went back and read it again. I said, that can't be the case. I mean, I understand 18 to 24-year-olds divided between Palestine or Palestinians and and Jews. I mean, I get that. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, The elite universities have done a good enough job of convincing people that the state of Israel has, you know, um, taken advantage of its prospects and positions. Um, I don't want to put words in Josh's mouth, but Josh kind of believes a little bit of that. Is that fair? I mean you you think Israel has unfairly, unfairly played their hand, gaining more and more favor with the United States Defense Department of Government. Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. I mean yeah. I, oh, you you and I have talked off the air about it. I want to make sure I don't misrepresent what you said. Um and and I will accept that and I and I've accepted this that I have a more traditional, you know, and a more not just a biblical worldview, a more traditional biblical worldview of um of the I don't know, the the, the relationship that America and its government has with the Israelis, the Jewish people, the Jewish, the Jewish state, um, the strategic ally in the Middle East, um, I guess as part of the geopolitics of, of my life. But, 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 but I want to go back to what Charles said. The media can still distort. I mean, they're unbelievably adept at manipulating. And here's the deal. If you're not informed, then you're malleable. I mean, if you don't have these, they're not going to change Charles's mind Charles is aware. Charles pays attention. Charles, you know, Dotton just listen to Wake Up Carolina. I'm going to say that leads you to be informed. I mean, he probably spends an hour or so of his day to try and better understand the world around him. But if you're watching rerun after rerun of Seinfeld and you flip it to CNN for two minutes or three minutes and they say Israel bad, Hamas good, I mean, it, it, it really, I mean, it, it does. It has, it has an effect. It has an impact, no doubt. Take a break, back in a few. I would say that I've really enjoyed Fox News Radio's Eben Brown joining us for the last several um, times, but enjoy and genocide just don't seem to be the, enlightened. I have been enlightened uh, by Eben's appearances here on Wake Up Carolina. He has a vast wealth of knowledge and a, a very intimate understanding of that part of the world, um, shared some personal experiences and, and stories about his family and uh in the Second World War. Uh Evan is with us this morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. And and I'm gonna ask you to let your guard down for I don't want to get you in trouble with Fox sure. News, but but I think we've <laughs> we've had a debate about all week. And and we are um, I mean, we're conservative radio and the good, the bad, the ugly. But but we've had as close as we can have, Evan at an intellectual conversation about Israel and our understanding. And, and I'm not Jewish. I've never been to Israel. Everything I know is what I've read and studied and tried to understand. And then from your appearances here has helped enlighten me. But, but one of the debates we've had between some of our callers is Israel a theocracy or not. From your perspective, from your seat, uh, how do you answer that?
11: So it's a difficult question to answer, and and here's why. I think we've we've talked about this aspect before. Uh, Jews are a people who have a religion and have a land, and that land and that religion has informed culture, which has persisted for thousands of years. So for a lot of people, uh, there isn't a separation between the two. How could you separate your culture, which is informed by religion, from your political life, if you will? So there are aspects of Israel that are theocratic in nature. There is a state uh, rabbinate that that uh, the state of Israel uh, has salaried rabbis that work in every town and district and, and whatnot. Uh, there are non-state synagogues and, and state rabbi, non-state rabbis that work as well. But there is a state system for, for rabbis that get assigned to minister or, or shepherd, if you will, uh, each of these communities across uh, the state of Israel. So in that aspect, yes, there is some. Um, there you could you could you could say that it is, there's some theocracy going on there, uh, and when when religion influences culture, which then therefore influences politics and lawmaking, yes, you you do have aspects of 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 judaism that informs the uh the uh the lawmaking and the laws that that are produced by the legislature absolutely and now it's still a representative democracy and it's a very vastly different model of that from what we have here in the united states but it is representative and it is democracy but there are elements of theocracy in there as well uh now there are some parts of uh of uh, Jewish uh, political spectrums that feel it should be more theocratic. In fact, the hard religious right of which uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has been aligning himself with to to keep his governing majority this time around uh, is more interested, uh, or has been accused of being more interested of enforcing more religious law than anything. Uh, The idea that the entire country, not just the city of Jerusalem, should be Sabbath observant, which means not driving and not using electricity or phones and whatnot. Uh, for instance, public transit doesn't run in in Jerusalem on the Sabbath. it does run elsewhere uh and there's always been um uh, controversy about having for instance, like a light rail system run through a a a uh, religious neighborhood uh, uh on the Sabbath, even if it's not stopping there uh those things call you know th- those are real political matters for israel and and there are people on the religious right of Israel who are who advocate for those types of laws. Uh, and then there are those on a more secular, uh, uh, secular strand of things that say, no, wait a second, we're, we're not a we are a Jewish state, meaning a state of Jews, but we are not a religious state. We're not what we call in, in Hebrew is called halacha. It's the, the code of rabbinic law. Uh, we, we're, we're That's the, sort of the big question of Israeli society is, is it a Jewish state or is it a halachic state? And that's uh, that's constantly being argued and bandied about. And
0: it's fair to say, I mean, I'm a, I'm an American making an interpretation. My interpretation from my studying and trying to better understand it, when Israel's government is what you and I would consider far right, there is more opposition to a stu- two-state
11: solution with Palestinians.
0: Is is that accurate?
11: I think that's been historically accurate. I, I haven't seen any real opinion polling yet in the past three weeks. I'm not sure that that much was done, but it does feel like there is a shift in that, that there are more centrist and left-leaning uh, uh, Israelis who have, uh, are more skeptical or, or abandoning the idea of the two-state solution. Some of that may be the anger-talking. Uh, but uh, some of it may be grounded, saying that they they've been convinced otherwise now that that that's an impossibility to have that as long, especially as long as Hamas continues to rule in Gaza, uh, and the Palestinian Authority and 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 Fatah uh, in the uh, Palestinian lands in the West Bank uh, continue to rule there because they too, while perhaps they have been less violent in compared to Hamas, they still engage in terrorism, they still engage in corruption and bribery. Uh, And they still engage in in pay for slay terrorism, where uh, a a family is paid millions of dollars over many years uh, for the acts of one of their sons committing uh, committing like a suicide bomb, for instance.
0: So someone as informed as you are, what did you make of what President Biden had to say at his press conference yesterday?
11: Well, look, I think it is the president's initial reactions to be uh, deferential to the state of Israel, specifically about their uh, need to remove Hamas as a threat. I think that he is pressured from um, uh, people within his administration, within his inner circle, uh, to, uh, to enforce some kind of strange standard that Israel needs to be proportionate in its response during a war. Uh, wars are not won. To quote, uh, if I could sanitize a quote from uh, General George S. Patton, uh, no, one die, no one wins a war by dying for their country. They win wars by making the other guy die for his. Uh, wars are not proportional. That's not how they're won. Uh, you know, we, The United States used uh, atomic weapons in Japan to end a war. Uh, the United States and the Allies firebombed Dresden to help end the war. Uh, uh, yes, there were civilians who died in the firebombing of Dresden, but Dresden was also the, the one of the main focal points of munitions manufacturing for the for the Nazis. So uh, pr- proportional responses um, I, I, to to enforce that upon Israel would seem disingenuous. Uh, however, I think that the, the 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 overall push for this by President Biden has been you, you know kind of nonchalant.
0: Edmund, one of the concerns people like me have are Ukrainian aid and assistance being associated with Israeli um, assistance and, and military support. There, There's a, a bill that left the Senate, goes to the House. Um, we've got a new speaker. He's opposed to Ukrainian funding. Are you concerned that some of the Israeli support could be sacrificed at the expense of lumping it with Ukraine and border security as the Senate tries to figure out a way to get a bill out of um, out of the body?
11: I I think that that's always a possibility. I think there's enough interested parties uh, in the House anyway that 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 who will be um, staunch in their uh, insistence that support for Israel uh, not be contingent or affected by support for Ukraine. Um, So I'm not overall concerned about the, uh, the the outcome. I think you'll you'll end up with some Form of, of needed and and adequate support for Israel, uh, Israel is uh, very capable of defending itself. What it needs, its resupply, uh, and uh, because a lot of its weapons manufacturing is done by American companies, uh, and and that's been uh, focused on Ukraine for the past couple of years. Uh, And and so Israel does, I think, have that concern. But a lot of those weapons were developed, engineered by Israel's defense tech sector, uh, which have then uh, been able to uh, provide that technology to the U.S. for for their own weapons. So uh, while there are people, and it's often steeped in anti-Semitism, who complain about any aid that Israel gets from the United States, it's much more of a partnership than what you see with other countries getting uh, getting essentially large checks or large uh, amounts of stuff. Uh, for for very little in return to the U.S. A lot of our uh, anti-tank missile systems and defensive capabilities that we have in this country come from Israeli technology, uh, which probably causes a a real problem, the fact that a lot of our own military tech was left in Afghanistan a couple of years ago, $80 billion of it, and one has to wonder if some of that tech was reverse-engineered and used to thwart Israeli defenses three weeks ago. Evan, last question. How critical is the American funding
0: and how much more vulnerable is Israel if there seems to be a withdrawal of uh, of American support?
11: It, it would probably be uh, disturbing to Israel. Um, you know, Israel tries to be, I think, as self-sufficient as it can be, but it, it does rely on U.S. funding. Uh, i don't know what their contingencies are if for some reason the us would just stop paying uh you know for uh or buying their technology or investing in their technology uh so uh you know israel doesn't necessarily get a check for this they they you know the united states maybe pick up the uh, pick up the cost for development and manufacturing and then sharing the results with israel uh, so if that relationship were to ever come to an end, would it put Israel on a severe disadvantage? Absolutely. It would certainly affect what is known as the qualitative military edge that Israel has always strived to uh, maintain over its uh, uh, its warring neighbors. Um, and so, uh, yes, without U.S. support, that qualitative military edge does, does uh, get threatened. Uh, would they have other ways of trying to maintain that edge? Probably. Would they seek other avenues? Absolutely. Well explained, Evan. Thank you for your time. Always enlightening and always
0: very informative. Thank you very much. You got it. Well, that's just such an interesting part of what we do here. I mean, Evan has joined us many, many, many times on this show. Specifically, right now. I mean, I mean, obviously he has a personal interest. I mean, there's no doubt about it. He makes no bones about that. But the degree of in uh, the, the level of which he's informed. I mean, you can disagree with his opinion, I got a good Jewish friend of mine. Uh, and we talk about Chick-fil-A a a lot and you know, the Sabbath for the Jews is on Saturday. The Sabbath for the Christians is on Sunday. Um, and Chick-fil-A closes on Sunday. And he's always talking about, you know, you can doubt their conviction. You can't doubt they're convicted. I mean, you know, if you don't see the world through the lens of a Judeo Christian, you know, if the Judeo Christian ethic is not kind of your, um, uh you know your, your 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 compass for how you see uh, the world or your North Star for how you see the world. Um, I mean, you, you know, why do you close on Sunday? Uh, now, now the Jews will argue they close on the wrong day. it's Saturday. You should close on I think Koufax did pitch baseball games on on Saturday. Um, just loyal to his faith. Um, that that's kind of the story. you know, you can doubt what what they're convicted by. You can't doubt whether they're convicted or not, and Edmund is very convicted. And you know some of the understandings he has about that world. Josh and I were talking yesterday because he's been a very curious. Though Rev and I come from a similar place, similar generation, similar disposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found Josh very interesting in this back and forth we've had because I've watched him seriously struggle with exactly where he lands and and where he stands and what he believes. And I mean, he, he wants to be moral and ethical, and he disagrees with the host somewhat on this particular situation. But I think Josh and I agreed. The fundamental question we wish we had an answer to is how many Muslims embrace Islamic Jihad? I mean, it's not all. But but the the, the scary part of this for me as somebody who does ascribe to a Judeo-Christian ethic and worldview is the lack of remorse demonstrated by the Muslim community when there is genocide, when there are um, you know, just just inhumane crimes committed against what I guess, well, uh, you know, some of the jihadists would consider to be infidels, and they must, you know, uh, they're 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 virgins in heaven and martyrs and uh, you know martyrdom and all these other. But I think fundamentally, I, I think a lot of us would love to know. We'll never know the answer to this, but we'd love to know what percentage of Muslims. I'm not asking what percentage of Muslims would would butcher a child or fly. You know, a plain load of innocent people in the side of a building, but what percentage of Muslims condemn that? Find that just hu- just humanistically unacceptable. I mean that that is butchering, that is barbaric, that that is putting our religion in a bad light. I mean that that's horrific. We cannot stand for that because, in all honesty, I mean, I, I guess the biggest the biggest problem I have with the Muslim faith is when something like that happens. There's not the degree of outcry from inside that faith that you would expect about beheading Jewish children or flying planes of innocent people into buildings of innocent people. That's just, I mean, once again, I don't know the answer to that, but I'd sure like to know. Take a break. Back in a few. 843 661 Evan Brown has always been a good guest of this show, especially right now. I mean, you know, it's really... I, I'm glad we know the guy, and I would never share private conversations, but Eben and I have been communicating uh privately, and I have just such respect for his fairness, uh not only his understanding of that part of the world, but but the fairness. Josh and I were talking a second ago, and um I'm mean Josh if Ryan calls fine if not okay, Ryan's on the phone uh, I want to make sure we um we we can it, it never fails we, we get kind of you know. Immersed in one subject, and then and then we shift gears and go to something else. But this is kind of a buffet. I mean, you know, it it's is, um yeah. variety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is you don't order your entree. I mean, you go to the buffet bar. You get a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of what you like and a little bit of what you don't like. That's just kind of the way um wake up Carolina rolls. <laughs> Ryan Schmelz is with us. Ryan, good morning. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you, sir? I am doing well. So if Speaker Mike Johnson hadn't got elected. I got some friends in high places, and Ryan Schmelz is going to be uh, the next (laughs) nominee for speaker. But we got it done. Got somebody across the finish line. Um, Surprised? Not surprised? Um, Kind of walked me through the day yesterday.
12: Well, I think I went into the day yesterday thinking that this was finally the guy who might be able to get the job done. I think that he had a, a popularity with the conservative wing of the party. And he also was a mild mannered politician who, you know, I, th- I think was a little bit easier for moderates to warm up to because of his demeanor. And that was something that Jim Jordan really didn't have. You know, Jim Jordan had this massive national profile, uh, very strong loyalty to former President Trump, and obviously was really well known to mainstream Democrats and people who live in swing districts as somebody who they, they in many ways weren't a fan of. So I think Johnson had that perfect balance that they needed to get those votes. And also I think fatigue may have played a little bit of a factor too.
0: Ryan, is it fair to say that the Republican Party as it searches to re-identify itself. I mean, it's not the party of 10 years ago. I mean, it re- I'm not saying it's Trump's party because I don't buy into that. It is an America First party. It's dominated by domestic policies and not foreign policy. They have kind of a new take on, you know, where we should be involved and to yeah. what degree. But but is it fair to say that this guy was kind of where the two wings of the party meet?
12: Uh, I think in many ways, I think it's possible, certainly. Um, you know, he's somebody who, uh, did not certify the 2020 election results, which is something that Democrats have really been hitting him on. And it's something he's probably going to get plastered with in terms of questions from the media over the next couple of days. Um, and, and, and in many ways, if you look at his voting record, he is very consistently conservative on a lot of issues. I mean, the only problem is now that the uh, maybe the Trump wing or the conservative wing has their candidate and has their guy for Speaker of the House, uh, Are they going to learn just how hard it is to negotiate with a a Senate that's run by Democrats in a White House where a Democrat still sits sits there? So this is going to be a challenge, but he has put out a schedule for how he wants appropriations to go and how he wants uh, the next short-term funding bill for the government to go. So we'll see how that all goes.
0: Well explained. Thank you, Ryan. Have a good one, my friend. Thank you. Ryan Schmales in our nation's capital um, commenting on what happened yesterday. Uh, Ron led me to believe yesterday, and I mean he's obviously he hears some of the scuttlebutt inside the Capitol. He led me to believe yesterday that um, uh, the deal had been made. I don't want to say the fix is in, but but uh, you know Johnson and I do believe fatigue played a little part of this. I'm going to go back to Josh real quick because I think this is interesting. Um, There's a generational issue here. Uh, We we Rev and I've talked. uh, You know, I mean it wouldn't surprise. I don't think it would surprise Rev if his kids had kind of a similar stance to Josh on, you know, the 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 American relationship or support of Israel. I know one of my kids. I don't know that I've talked to the other two. I've got a, a hippie kid you've heard me uh, discuss. He lands about where Josh does. But here's the issue, and we know what the Harvard-Harris poll says, and it's not about Palestinians and Jewish. I mean, I think there's a fair debate. I mean, I really and truly, I think any reasonable-minded person has to accept that there's, a, that there's a, a turf battle between Jews and Palestinians about who the rightful owner of that land is. I believe it's the Jews. I mean, to me personally, I think that it goes back to God of Abraham and King David. Uh, I mean, I understand the God of an Empire. I understand how many percentage of that was Islam. And I accept there's a fair debate to be had about that. But Hamas is a terrorist organization that consists largely of Palestinians. So, so to say that I support the Palestinians over the Jews, that's one thing. To say I support the, uh, the terrorists over the Jews is quite something something different. But, but here's the deal, and I told Rev as he walked back in the door, there's nobody Josh's age making policy on whether or not to fund Israel. I mean, they're being educated in elite universities. They're, 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 they're working at CNN. They're working at MSNBC. They're working at the New York Times. I mean there there are a lot of Joshes in, in those positions. Now Josh is conservative, but, but on this particular issue, I, I would argue he's a little non-traditional. I don't think I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm certainly not suggesting that you're wrong, but but you're a little bit non-traditional. The the the, the issue at hand is, so you've got these 30-year-olds working at major American media companies, and they've been trained indoctrinated uh by elite universities in america to believe certain things about certain places in the world um and they i guess have accepted we've seen the polling is pretty clear it worked However, the elite universities in concert with the media have absolutely flipped the the dynamic uh the paradigm of how people feel about hamas and hezbollah I can't speak to hezbollah hamas in particular um and the jews and the state of israel the jewish state of israel um I think Eben basically said, is it a theocracy? Yes and no. I mean, if you're arguing it's not, okay, there's ground to stand on. If you're arguing it is, yeah, there's ground to to stand on. But but what, what, what the point I'm trying to make is, Josh, a lot of the opinions, the loudest voices are a little bit older than you that graduated from elite universities. Hardly anybody your age is voting on policy. Right. I mean, it's my age and older. I mean, I, you know, it's people, it's baby boomers. Some I mean, of the boomers are going to decide what happens or not. In
1: the U.S. Congress, it's uh, geriatrics.
0: Well, I mean, to, to some In degree, of you're cases. right. But, but the point I'm trying to make is nobody at CNN is going to vote on Israeli aid. Nobody at MSNBC, nobody at Fox, nobody at the Wall Street Journal. I mean, they're going to write about it and opine about it, but nobody your age is going to cast a ballot saying yay or nay to whether we fund Israel or not. So the majority of votes are going to be cast on the more traditional view of Israel, the, the ones that I believe in. And then the person who walked in our studio yesterday and believes in, it's not to say that we know we're right and you're wrong. I mean, there's always an evolution of what we believe and why we believe it. And should we be suspicious of what? Of course. I mean, I've said earlier, I'm, I'm suspicious of every opinion I have. I mean, I think that's how you form better opinions and then get to the bottom of things. Be suspicious of what you believe. Always challenge yourself and always accept that you could be wrong. So, but but, but the, you know, the Josh's of the world are, are, are working at CNN. They're working at Fox. They're working at the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, but they ain't making policy. The ones that are making policy are not going to leave Israel hanging. Rest assured. I mean, they, they, they will vote. I think you've heard it from Evan and Ryan or Eben and John Decker. They both believe that if push comes to shove, you may not want to send any more money to Ukraine, but, but if it's combined with Israeli funding, it's going to get passed. I mean, that's what I've interpreted from our conversations with Decker and with Eben Brown. The majority of American Republicans don't want to send any more money to Ukraine, but, but they're going to have an out. The traditional Republican is going to have an out by saying, I couldn't leave Israel hanging. And they'll be, you know, in most of these districts, voters are going to reward them for being steadfast in support of Israel, whether it makes sense or not. Let's go to the phone. Sam in Darlington. Good morning, Sam.
13: Morning. As uh, a recent caller called in was talking about the cooperation between the United States and the Israeli military, and there sure is a lot of it, Uh, I think the truth is pretty close to saying that the Israeli military is a subsidiary of the United States military industrial empire complex. And so is the Ukrainian military. And that is why I think that our Washington establishment is telling us we have to support the Israeli and the Ukrainian militaries because it's, it's really supporting their pet project here to you know, to build up our military industrial complex and rule the world. And, uh, that's a, a part of why I'm pushing back against those things.
0: Sam, do you feel different about Israel than you do Ukraine?
13: Well, yeah, there's a lot more history between us and, you know, we, we've supported them for a long time, but we have, uh, in the past have not been supportive enough, you know, during the beginning of World War Two, and, uh, so yeah, I, I think there's we have you know a little bit more uh, more obligation to Israel, but uh, but it is Israeli Jews that are speaking out against the Netanyahu regime that inspire me, and and Jewish intellectuals in the United States like Noam Chomsky and uh, and uh, Seymour Hersh and these guys that have criticized the way Israel, uh, the state of Israel treats the Palestinians. And so I don't feel like I'm anti-Jewish.
0: Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. 843 937 Sam brings up another element to this dynamic American regret. You know, do, do, do the Americans still regret the fact that they were so late to the game and if not for the bombing of Pearl Harbor, may have not entered. I mean, I, I think we would have. I think history shows clearly that we were heading uh, our way into being involved. Obviously, December 7, 1941, changed and, uh, and accelerated everything. But but I, I've always wondered, and I don't know how you measure that. I mean, that that would be the most inexact, imprecise measurement ever. But what sort of American regret lingers today that that our, our kind of default position, Rev, says, Uh, We did it once, can't do it again. You know, we we allowed things to happen in this world that we should, uh, I mean, we had a moral and ethical obligation as a, a Western and advancing nation to intervene in the genocide that we knew was happening and we were late to the dance. We're not going to ever let that happen again. I mean, I think there are many, many, many policymakers today who are motivated by that impulse that, that American regret impulse. And I guess to some degree it's honorable. I mean, I I don't know if it's perpetual and never ending, but, um, and when this generation passes and another takes place, I would imagine there'll be less regret. Let's go to the phone.
1: Rujan in Darlington. Good morning.
0: Good morning. Good morning,
2: guys. Hey, listen, what I'm, what I'm seeing, uh, with the protests at these, uh, Columbia and, you know, some of these other universities, um, is is a result of Mercusian philosophy and his and his teachings that came out of you know out of California back in the sixties you know he, he had a concerted effort in in, in causing all this but but we need to we need to understand and get a good grip and get a good grasp on history um and understand how Israel was established i mean that whole part of the country was up on a you know the british Empire. And so you know, I mean, it, that that land was was granted to them, you know, by the Britons and the UN. So, you know, if anybody's responsible, it's all of it's all, of, you know, the UN and and Great Britain, and you know, they, they've got to understand that they cannot, they have to approach things from a factual basis and not from an emotional basis. You know, these these kids, they're not being taught. You know they're not being taught critical reason, You know, I mean, uh, critical thinking. All they're doing is going off emotion, and and trying to be a part of the crowd. You know, you know, the, there's the old saying: if you're if you're in your 20s and you're a conservative, you're crazy. If you're in your 40s, you're not. You, you're,
0: and you're not. You're stupid. Thank you, Rujan. Understand. Appreciate that. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes to you by
3: Delta Building
0: Systems.
3: Call 803-720-5260. So, what are you whining about today? You know, these people lie all the time. And I don't put it past for them to be lying now. I don't say that Trump is a saint, but one, pardon me, I'm a lady I am, but one damn thing for sure, he is better than any one in this administration. All these people do is lie, and if people believe their lies, you'll fall for them every single time.
0: I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll make a list, Josh, of these people. You know, we're, we're, I'm, I'm bad about the, you know, those people who, those people, you know, <laughs> these people. You know them? You know who they are? Mm. Wh- who are they? Well, let's make a list. You know, th- these people. Look, I, it's, it's hard for, you can't convince me under any circumstance that Trump was more chaotic than what we've got today. I mean, we're talking about, you know, trouble in places around the world that were, I mean, we weren't having a lot of trouble in the Middle East. We weren't having a lot of trouble with Ukraine and, and Russia. I mean, you can call it um, appeasement, poly- I don't care what you call it, but, but America seemed to be in a better place when Trump was the president than it is today. And if people base their vote on, you know, I, I don't want to say America standing in the world. I mean, that could be an academic exercise. You can get real confused about that. I would just ask average Americans how you felt every morning you woke up when Trump was president compared to how you feel every morning you wake up with Joe Biden as president. And if you're honest with yourself, Trump wins by a mile.
2: proud democrat knowing that barack obama was the greatest president that we've ever had in the u.s it's glad to see the republicans eat each other y'all republicans y'all just keep doing it to one other, one another and as a proud democrat i'll just sit back and watch and enjoy the must see tv on cnn of course y'all have a great day love y'all bye-bye <laughs>
0: Yeah, I kind of like that. There's no denying that Barack Obama was enormously talented and transformative. In in, in my opinion, in a bad way. Now, the caller says the greatest president ever. That's, you know, to me, it's Thomas Jefferson. But who am I? (laughs) I mean, I'm a guy with an opinion like our caller is someone with an opinion. Um, I mean, his strategy is, I mean, that's sound. When you don't have any good ideas and the ideas you're able to implement don't work then the default strategy should be hope the opposition destroys itself. And the Republicans, if you give them enough rope, they'll hang themselves. They historically have shown the inability to take opportunities and make the most of um, said opportunities.
3: You've been listening to the Wake Up Carolina Winer Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. You got something you want to whine about? Call anytime, 803-720-5260. It's the official and the original Wake Up Carolina
0: Winer Line. Got a few moments here before we get out. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there.
1: Jammy in Darlington. Morning, Jam.
0: Morning, guys. Um,
14: I was listening to a second-rate radio show after this one, uh, which is such a stellar show. But this was a second rate radio say that again, James. Show. Say that again louder for yeah. folks and out. Loud.
1: Louder and slower, well, please. Well <laughs> I, I,
14: I was listening to a second rate program after this stellar program uh, uh yesterday. Nice. And um they had a <laughs> senator on there that said, you know, um Biden had combined the um the um funds for Israel and um and what's the other country all of a sudden it went out of my head. Um, uh, Ukraine. combined Ukraine. And his argument was that's the only way he could get um the Republicans to vote for it if he put those two together. The senators um idea was we need to separate the two. And this was before the new speaker was elected who is against you know funding Ukraine. Maybe they will separate those two, and then we'll see what happens. I think that's the way to go.
0: Thank you, Jim. Um, yeah, I think he'll try that, but, but I, eventually I think he'll be forced. I mean, if he sends a bill back to the Senate that separates Ukrainian border security and Israeli, in other words, if he takes one bill and turns it into three, sends it back to the Senate, I just don't think it, it passes. And then you've got to put the pressure on the House, do we live Israel hanging And that's what I tried to argue before our last break. The majority of policymakers are boomers. They're going to have that traditional view of Israel. They're going to be compelled to say, okay, I'll hold my nose and just this one time vote for money for Ukraine. But I'm not doing it again. You know, I'll never do it again. There's no doubt that I think Speaker Johnson will try to take one bill, turn into three, and they'll hash that out in the caucus, and he'll get some some input from Democrats. Um, And that may be the first bipartisan moment of his speakership but for a guy who got to washington to 17 to be the speaker i mean he's going to be drinking out of a fire hose for the first little while and this is i don't want to say an important test but it'll be interesting to watch him navigate the complexities of ukrainian funding border security and aid to israel
1: let's yeah, go to the phone. because there there was a guy recently who walked into washington as president <laughs> yeah. had
0: never been elected before yeah, you're right i mean I, you know in the weirdest way, I think a lack of experience in today's political world is probably more helpful than, than hurtful. Oh, yeah. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Florence. Hello, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. Um, one thing that I'm
15: having hard, hard time understanding, uh, you know, I grew up with the, you know, the the impression that uh, Jewish people in America are very prevalent in the media. Also with the idea that they are very, very loyal to Israel and that they also have a major presence in among education and of course elite universities the so-called best universities if those two things are three things are true i don't understand why the media and the universities are critical of Israel especially if you take the premise that you know Israel is our only and best ally in the middle east and then uh, wouldn't they be allies of uh, England and France as well, since you know Iran is a lot closer to England and France than the United States, so I guess I don't understand you know why that's happening. Could it be Netanyahu um, I, I i I don't know um, he's so he's so hawkish about the state of Israel. um I would think American Jews would want to support anyone who's going to ensure the survival of the, of
0: the state. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. I mean, I, 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 struggle with that prospect, but I do. I like Joe. I'm like, okay, I've been told all my life that the Jews run the media. Well, if the Jews run the media, how do we have an anti-Israel sentiment or anti-Jewish sentiment in, in the media? Um, and, and I think Joe brought up some of the debates within intellectual Israel, you know, the moderates and, um, and then Netanyahu being kind of a, um, a hardliner he would be more theocratic uh, or you know desire for israel to be a more uh, theocratic governed he kind of i mean he doesn't say this but he insinuates he leads me to believe that he's not a big fan of the two state solution and um and maybe some of the jewish media is more conciliatory to a two state solution a lot of this has to do with and we may dig into this tomorrow a lot of this has to do with the deal that Israel was about to make with Saudi Arabia that could have been transformative. I mean, you, you never know, but, but it seemed that Saudi Arabia was willing to say, okay, we accept the Jewish state as a Jewish state. It has a right to exist. Let's not live in the Stone Ages forever. Let's welcome and embrace modern culture and society and enlightenment. Um, now, no, once again, I'm not saying it worked. But it seemed to me that Saudi Arabia and Israel were on a path to a more amicable relationship. And I, I guess, you know, if Netanyahu's a hardliner on the Jewish state, then Iran would be the hardliner on uh, fanatical Islam or, you know, a, a more anti-Western interpretation of Islam and the Koran. And, you know, I mean, if you want to get into the weeds and try to really intellectual digest and understand and analyze, you could easily say, that the, the moment Iran felt that Saudi Arabia and Israel were making sincere advancements about coexisting was the day Iran said, no, we can't have that. Um, abolishment of the Jewish state has always been our priority. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.